0: So this is a deeply philosophical Paul Kimball that we've got on the show here tonight. This is different than what I have recalled from our previous
1: conversations. Yes, but our previous conversations were usually when you and I were drunk, so... That's true. That's true. Those were philosophical in a different way. (laughs) Soul grifters and time drifters, they're no longer the heavy lifters. living in their Pluto towns with their Jupiter frowns, their faces like the aftermath of a nuclear weapons test. The irradiated chickens with their half-lives and half-wits have come home to roost. Ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal.
0: What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of banalofamerica.com with another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. I've got a ton of exciting news to share with all of you, but we're going to save that for the end of the program, so stay tuned for a whole nother boatload of in-house notes. Unlike in previous weeks where we've been thanking the BOA Audio listeners who have contributed theme music to the specific installment of the program. This time around, we're doing something different as we're using theme music contributed by our guest this week, longtime friend and supporter of BOA Audio, our good buddy Paul Kimball. That was his tune there at the beginning of the show, titled New Frontier. So thanks to Paul for not only appearing on the show, but also contributing the theme music to the program. With that said, let's talk a little bit about what you're going to be hearing here on this edition of BOA Audio. As noted, our guest this week here on the program is film and television producer, writer, director. He is a serious observer and pundit when it comes to the world of the paranormal, talking about, of course, Paul Kimball. And we're doing something a little bit different here this week on the program because I could tell right away when I sat down... ...to catch up with Paul. He had a lot to say and he had a lot of different things to say. This wasn't the same Paul Kimball that appeared on the program way back in Season 2. This was a different Paul Kimball. So I really wanted to sit back and just let Paul cut loose and expound on the issues we were going to be covering. Nonetheless, of course, it is a conversation. It is a jam session of sorts here on the program... It is fast and loose for sure, but here are some of the tent poles we're going to be covering over the course of this nearly two-hour conversation. At the beginning, we're going to be covering our film project, Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma. Folks who have been listening to BOA Audio over the last few weeks know about this project. I've been plugging it quite a bit at the end of the show. And part of the reason why we're rushing this interview out to you as fast as possible here. This weekend is because we've only got five or six days left in the fundraising campaign for Beyond Best Evidence. The finish line is in sight, and we wanted to get the most information about Beyond Best Evidence and, no pun intended, the best information to the BOA audio listeners to explain more about this film project and why we are so passionate about having this film made. We're going to be talking about why this film really is quite different from the normal quote-unquote UFO films you've seen out there and how it really is going to hopefully change the perspective of a lot of people when it comes to UFOs. We're going to also delve into the world of ufology and the UFO phenomenon, looking at it from a number of angles and levels, most notably the underground war that's going on between traditional ufology and this sort of new emerging multidisciplinary research and of course we'll discuss the hot button issue that seems to rear its head every time UFOs are discussed disclosure. Along the way we're also going to talk about specialization in the paranormal. We'll hear about Paul's thoughts on the March to 2012 especially Peter Gersten's notorious plans for December 21st 2012 and we'll deal with a variety of big picture issues facing both the paranormal research community and the world at large. Altogether, really, it is a deeply reflective edition of BOA Audio where questions are quite simply thrown out the window in favor of ponderances and ruminations from the always evolving Paul Kimball. Now, for those of you who are unfamiliar with Paul Kimball, I asked him to send an updated bio from what I'd had in the past, and he sent me like four paragraphs, so we just cannot do that. I'm going to give you a thumbnail look here at Paul's bio. As a film and television producer, writer, and director since 1999, Paul has created over a dozen documentaries on a wide range of subjects with a particular emphasis on the paranormal. These include the excellent Stanton T. Friedman is Real, Aztec 1948, Do You Believe in Magic, and Best Evidence Top 10 UFO Sightings, all of which focused on the UFO phenomenon. Fields of Fear, about Canadian cattle mutilations, and The Island of Blood, about the legendary Chupacabra of Puerto Rico. In 2008 and 2009, Paul wrote, directed, produced, and hosted the popular regional television series Ghost Cases, and is currently developing the documentary with myself, titled Beyond Best Evidence, The UFO Enigma, The Sister Piece to Best Evidence, Top 10 UFO Sightings. Over the years, Paul has become known as one of Canada's leading commentators on the paranormal. His blog, The Other Side of Truth, has been read by over 580,000 people since his creation in 2005, and he has appeared on a myriad of radio and television programs over the past decade to discuss the paranormal and other mysteries. He's also written for various magazines, including Phenomena and Alien Worlds, and has spoken at numerous conferences in Canada, the United States, and the United Kingdom. His website is www.redstarfilms.blogspot.com. And the website to make a donation to Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma can be found at www.indiegogo.com slash UFO. And that's spelled I-N-D-I-E. dot com slash UFO. Check it out. With all that said, let's get down to business, my friends, and rock and roll. This interview was recorded on June eighth, 2011. Paul Kimball talking about the world of UFOs, ufology, and the film Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma, on BOA Audio Season 6. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Coming at you this time with an old friend of the program. He actually broke the record a few years ago with three appearances on the show in one season. And actually, it's been that long since we've had him on to talk general esoterica, general paranormal, and the world of ufology. Uh, We've had him on in the past few years for the baseball special. But it's time to have him back on the show to talk about, you know, this kooky world that we're involved in that is uh, UFOs and whatnot. And, of course, I'm talking about my buddy Paul Kimball from Red Star Films. And uh, we're working on this film, Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma, and it's the last week to donate, so for all the folks who've been listening to the show and have heard me plug this thing all the time at the end of the program, you know, we need help out now as much as ever uh, to help us get some money in the till to to make this thing happen. So we're going to be talking about that, we're going to be talking about UFOs, we're going to be talking about ufology, and uh, who knows what else. So uh, just strap yourself in and get ready for a ride. Welcome uh, back to the show, Paul.
1: Hey, good to be back, and I'd just like to point out that, unlike previous seasons, it looks like my baseball predictions are actually doing pretty well this year, at least in the American League. Things look good,
0: so. Things are looking good. I have no complaints about the baseball season so far,
1: so. Hey, I had the Brewers in the Amer- National League Central, and they're only two games back at the card, so I feel good, I feel very good about winning the All of America League finally this year, and um, and sort of uh, kicking Go Rightly's butt. <laughs> I'm going to I do not go all this
0: time at Greg Bishop's house has has uh <laughs> has rubbed off on you. I see a Go Rightly rivalry budding.
1: Oh no! Well, you know anybody that would cheer for the San Francisco Giants, everyone knows the Dodgers is you know are the superior team on the West Coast. I have been in California too long, haven't I?
0: Yeah. Well, I hope you had protection there when you went to Dodger Stadium. or has rough and tumble.
1: Actually, it's weird. And for folks who don't know, I. Literally just got back last night from three weeks in Los Angeles, so that's what we're talking about. I went to see two Dodgers games, and uh, both with my brother. Uh, the first one, this, we were in Greg and Sigrid's um, seats because they were out of the country, and they were kind enough to leave us uh, their tickets that they had for the games. We had to move from the section we were in because there was a fire. Like the half of the stadium had to move over to the other half. Fortunately, the Dodgers don't sell out, so there were fine seats in the other half of the stadium. <laughs> but my my brother got home and he said, "You know, that was referenced on in Sports Illustrated when he got home. It was, I guess, in the magazine that there had been a fire at Dodger Stadium." I said, "Yeah, we were there. That's cool." Yeah, it was a
0: big story for the night.
1: Yeah, it made up for the fact that the Dodgers got waxed eight to one by the Florida Marlins. So there you go. Yeah.
0: Now, before we get any hate mail,
1: because we're talking about baseball already. <laughs> Sorry, that's all. That's all we'll say about baseball.
0: So we've been, we've been, as I said here at the beginning, we've been trying to raise money here for uh, Beyond Best Evidence. We're we're in the final week of of the uh, of the fundraiser. Where you're at right now? What are your thoughts on this film?
1: Um. Well, you know what. I've done a lot of radio, and I've certainly uh, done this a lot of my blog and print stuff. It's not like folks haven't heard about it. So, and the um, the contribution so far, uh, very thankful for the uh, the people who contributed, but it's it's well short of of what we were looking for. And really what we need to make the film. Uh, There are other sources of money involved, tax credits. It's all set out at the the website. You know, the the contributions that we're asking through this Indiegogo campaign are the only part of the fundraising scheme. But like a four-legged dog trying to run in a race, you need all four legs. Otherwise you've got Skippy, the three-legged dog and he doesn't do very well. So the other legs are all pretty much there. It's this leg. And that, that, Doesn't seem to be doing so well so far, but, you know, we still have eight or nine days as of today. I'm still hopeful. I'd like to correct a couple of, because I've seen these online, a couple of misapprehensions. Um, uh, I saw one guy, uh, yeah, sure, what the hell, I'll name them. Anthony Bregalia, who, as a researcher, um, has the talent of a kumquat, and he referred to it as begging, that you and I were begging for money. And there was another guy on some message board that, frankly, I actually had to threaten the message board owner with a lawsuit um, because I said, uh, "Look, you can't let people do this." This anonymous person was saying, uh, calling me, "You weren't involved," but calling me a crook, and we were just stealing people's money. I just thought, you know, uh, people need to get a life. Um, yeah, yeah?
0: I'm going to let you go ahead and straighten this out because sure. this is moronic. This is just moronic statements from morons.
1: I mean, right. I mean, Indiegogo and Kickstarter, I was I was at a, a symposium put on by Telefilm Canada, which is our federal government's film financing agency. It's very hard to make a feature film in this country without their support, for, uh, although I did it. But uh, most other people, they, they sort of run the film industry here in Canada from a government point of view. And the whole um, seminar was uh, for an entire day was, and they were doing this across the country in the four or five major cities in Canada, and it was on internet fundraising, distribution, and marketing for the film and television industry. And you, I could get into a very long conversation. It was a brilliant, brilliant symposium, a lot of great ideas and sort of blue sky stuff and, and what people are doing. But basically, the message was, look, the film and television system has changed over the last five to ten years, and it and it has. It used to be that somebody like me would just walk into a network with an idea, and as folks I think know, i made a number of documentaries about the paranormal or, or UFOs in particular. You go in you say, look, here's my idea, and it's for a serious documentary like Stan T. Friedman is Real or Feels of Fear or, B, or Best Evidence, Top Ten UFO Sightings. And they would say, sure, okay, we will um, will pre-license it, which means they would buy the rights in Canada for a certain period of time. That would allow me to leverage government financing. And you could put the budget together to make. And I, I know folks are about to say, oh, my God, he must be getting rich. But, you know, you can make a film with a budget between $100,000 and $200,000. Now that, as most American filmmakers will tell you, is chump change. Um, even in Canada, those were low-budget docs that I did. But you know what? I didn't get rich. That was the system. I still made enough to live on, and I wanted to make those films. Fine. That system, while it still exists in theory, is more or less uh, gone in terms of actual practice. We're trying to make serious, real documentaries that address real issues. Certainly a fringe issue, as most people would tell you, the UFO phenomenon is. Um, unless you want to watch something like, oh, look, here's a green alien documentary – with all the crazy cuts and the, and the spooky music and all the stupid things that I think serious people sort of shudder and go, Ugh, why doesn't television make better documentaries? The simple answer is because the reality television wave hit, you know, within the last five to 10 years and changed the way that people do business. So <clears throat> never say it's impossible, but it's virtually impossible to go to a network right now, certainly in Canada, and I'm assuming it, judging by the quality, quote, quote, of programming in the United States on sort of paranormal subjects and say, look, we'd like to make a serious film about the UFO phenomenon that discusses all the various possible explanations for what might be happening, uh, which is kind of what we're looking at doing for Beyond Best Evidence. Mm -hmm. So, network person, we're not just going to talk about little gray aliens from Zeta Reticuli. The, we'll talk about them. That's one possible explanation, and we'll have Stan Friedman or Kevin Randall talking about that. We'll also be talking about time travel, about extra, the extra-dimensional hypothesis, the kind of things that Valet has been talking about for decades. We'll talk about um, the idea that maybe it is all explainable, the psychosocial hypothesis. We will overturn every theoretical stone, the crypto-terrestrial hypothesis. We'll put it all out there. Because, frankly, what we have to do is move beyond cases and lights in the sky and admit or, or say the UFO phenomenon is an objective reality, whatever it is. Now, let's give people all the possible answers and then let them make up their own mind. And let's do it in an intelligent and informed way. And whatever people think of me, um, and I know not everybody likes me personally, but if they look at my work and what I've written, I think it's safe to say that I've always done things in an intelligent and informed way, whether you like what I've said or not. Good good luck is all I can say trying to get that film made. I mean, I don't want this to sound like sour grapes, but I want folks to understand what we're doing here. So that's the kind of film you and I want to make. I believe, having been on enough message boards and talked to enough people over the years, that that's the kind of film that a small segment of the population wants to see. I think most people who sort of sit back in their chairs and are happy to watch the average programming that comes down the pike on sci-fi or <clears throat> Um, excuse me, or whatever other network is producing, a, you know, alien agenda or whatever it is. I don't know, <laughs> ancient aliens or something. Yeah,
0: like ancient aliens, yeah.
1: Sure, yeah. You know, fine. There's a the much larger segment that wants to watch that kind of stuff. I have no interest in making that kind of stuff. Um, life is too short and I have better things to do. So if I'm going to make a film about the paranormal in any respect, and certainly about UFOs, the one film I have left in me was beyond best evidence, which is kind of the sister piece to best evidence. Best evidence said here's the cases, I've made my point, there's something here. Now beyond best evidence is good. Let's do what I don't think anybody else has really done, which is take a, a complete look at all the possible explanations. So, bring this all full circle and I hope I haven't bored folks, but because there have been some goofy people out there. And I you know what? Not even the goofy people I think it's incumbent on us, it's our responsibility to explain to folks, and this is the first sort of lengthy chance that I've had to do it, how this all works. So Indiegogo and Kickstarter, anyway, to go back to telefilm, this is not something that Tim and I kicked up, you know, sort of dreamt up on our own, like set with, you know, sort of evil rolly fingers, must no, sorry, baseball reference, Um, sort of the handlebar mustaches like the (laughs) Kaizen, how can we fleece the rubes? This is a, because everything has been changing, independent filmmakers – have, and, and musicians are using Indi, things like Indiegogo and Kickstarter. So are, frankly, guys who want to send their their daughter on a class trip to Cuba or something. I saw something like that, where a guy started a campaign to raise 700 bucks to send his his kid to Cuba or whatever. I mean, everybody's using it. Book publishers in the independent world and what they're doing it's basically PBS. It's what PBS has done for decades, but now it's it's moved out to the public sector or rather the private sector where you say look we it's community fundraising or crowd fundraising as some people call it we want to create a community of people who will help us raise the money to do a film in this case or it could be to make an independent record or whatever that the record labels or the the, the television networks are not going to fund and with media consolidation you know you basically got five record labels left and with media consolidation you basically got five companies that own all the television networks right so if you're not in with them if you want to make something that's a little off kilter a little outside what they consider to be the mainstream then you've got to find a different way of doing it and that means going to the audience and saying look help us out become part of the team join us as we try and make this film and then the benefit for them is and we offer perks i mean there's you know People can go to the website and see at a certain level of contribution you get this and then this and whatever. Exactly. But the the basic perk is you're helping to get a film made that you want to see. So if you don't want to see Beyond Best Evidence, if it doesn't interest you, well, don't don't contribute. Fair enough. But if you do want to see a film like Beyond Best Evidence Made – and if you think that I'm the right guy to make it, and Tim's the right guy to help me, and you like the work that we've done over the years, and I know everyone likes Tim, but even if you don't like me, if you if you like the <laughs> work, we've done, um, who wouldn't like Paul? I don't know. Then, then help us out. You know, I'm I'm just going to be straight up and say, look, contribute, and uh, at any level, and that could be one dollar, it could be five dollars, it could be ten, it could be five hundred if you have it. But you know what? Every little bit helps, and it's not. We're not relying just on your money. You're part of the part of the puzzle. Uh, my own company is putting in money and resources, uh, which are significant. I'm taking an awful lot less money to make this. And you know what, folks, this is what I do for a living, so I make no apologies for getting paid to do these things because, uh, like everybody else, you know, I have to pay the bills. But I'll take less money to do it because this is probably the last UFO film I'll ever make, and, uh, you know, I want to do it. And uh, then there's tax credits and other incentives in Canada that we get that round out the big picture. And a final word, for those people that think that we were begging for money or were crooks, all of the money that the film earns, uh, at least that my company earns from the film, which is the same me, is being donated to charity, and that was always my intent. So this, um, while I will make money to make the film, and so will Tim, uh, at the end of the day, we won't make money from the sale of the film. Now, all of that money will be going to the Crohn's and Colitis Foundation of Canada, which is a, uh, a charity near and dear to my heart because a close family member of mine has Crohn's disease. So, um, you know, there's, there's a little bit of good coming out of it at the back end, too. But don't donate because of that, either. The reason to contribute is you want to see an intelligent film made by intelligent guys with a serious and intelligent conversation about the UFO phenomenon and what it might represent to all of us. And uh, if you want to see that film, this is your chance. And uh, if we can come anywhere near the goal that we set for ourselves, then then great. We're going to make a great film. If we don't, then... We may or may not make a great film. I don't know. It'll probably we will. I'll make the film someday, but it'll probably take longer to get it made.
2: So. Right. Right. So anyway,
1: hope again. Hope I didn't bore anyone. Don't want to sound like it we're entitled or anything. But I wanted folks to know that this is not something Tim and I cooked up. You know, on our own. There's a lot of other people doing this. It's uh, it's it's new. It's a new way of doing things. But it's also not only is it a legitimate way of fundraising. But it is the one way of fundraising that takes the decision-making out of the hands of three or four or five gatekeeper corporations and puts the decision-making power back in the hands of, you know, the average, so-called, quote, quote, average citizen. And uh, frankly, that's theoretically and philosophically, that's quite exciting, too. So we're sort of seeing how that works out. And um, it'll, it's an interesting test study to see how seriously people take the UFO phenomenon, too. Um, so uh, so there's a lot of moving parts going on here, and it's, it's kind of been a fun ride. Uh, I've done a lot of radio, and this will be the last radio show I do. So I saved the best for last. There you go. Yeah,
0: yeah. And to the guy who says we're begging, you know, fuck you, man. I'm sorry, but I got my blood boiling here just hearing this. It's, I mean, you know, we're not asking you to donate money to help us fix our car. Okay, and there's uh, there's people out there in the world of the paranormal, and Paul knows exactly what I'm talking about, and I'm sure a lot of listeners do too, that sure, are out Steve there. Steinberg. Yeah, <laughs> I have
1: no problem. I have no problem um, calling out a hypocritical beggar when I see a hypocritical beggar, Tim. So
2: exactly, uh, that,
1: this is a guy who's hit up guests on his show and his co-hosts for money, and it took me too long to see that, and I, and I finally did. You know, but you, uh, you're a good guy. You're a stand-up guy. You've done your show now for what six or seven years or eight. Six years How now. Many? Six years, and um, some weird who? Some weird guess. Like who was the Rumpelstiltskin guy? No, wait. What was it? What the hell are you talking about, Rumpelstiltskin? <laughs> <laughs> Pennsylvania? Some weird esoteric topic. Come on. It started with an R. Sounded like Rumpelstiltskin.
0: His name was like Rumpel. I don't. I'd have to look.
1: Uh, we'll have to look this up. This is one of your most famous episodes. It was so off the chart. Like it had. I can. I'll look it up as we're talking. I'm sorry. It's not stills I'm probably. No.
2: Was it recently or a while ago?
1: No, it was a couple of years ago. Um, it's like a legendary episode. Hold on. People will hear me typing on the computer. It's not William Zabel. No, no, no. Um, I don't think so. Been uh, all of America. Yeah. What was the topic? That's the thing. It wasn't. It was something. I thought it was like the. What are they call the Amish? Oh, Springer. There you go. Wemple still skip. That's what I call. Yes, it. Yes, it was the
0: Amish, uh, the Amish from Springer. Yes. One of my favorite episodes. Uh, you know, anytime you can explore the Amish, I'm all for it.
1: Well, yes, especially if they're cute. Um, <laughs> no, that's terrible. I mean, look, you know this. Uh, there are people out there that are fleecing people, and I've stopped talking about them. And because it has nothing to do with the UFO phenomenon, I spent. I don't know, the first couple of years, uh, when I was sort of involved in all of this, you know, saying, Stephen Greer is this, or, um, Michael Sal is this, or this guy, Stephen Bassett's this, and I just don't care anymore. Like, if other people want to go down that path, that's fine. At the end of the day, you have to separate the, as Valet would say, the signal from noise, and I think far too many people have been caught up in the noise and not the signal. And, just say, look, let's focus in on what's important, which is looking – and what what interests us, what got you and me and Greg and Nick and Mac and everybody else I know and respect into uh, looking into this in the first place, which is the mystery. Exactly. And let's just focus on that because that's cool and interesting and, frankly, a little mind-blowing if you really want to think about it. And the st- the personal stuff and everything else, and I was as guilty as anyone else for a number of years of sort of getting dredged down into that pit. And uh, you know what? I just mentioned Jean's name, um, and so they're guilty again. It, on the other hand, <laughs> you know, Jean is a pretty egregious example, but you know there there are plenty of other ones. And I uh, like just ignore them. Let's just when we you have an opportunity to help make a film like this, um, get involved. And you know what? Even if it's not contributing money, get involved by publicizing it on your blog or sending an email out. There's still time, and uh, getting the word out there—that's useful too. So, um, so I think that's at the end of the day, what really excites me about this project. Uh, and you know, I've got bigger and better things to do, honestly, from a business point of view—feature films and stuff. I've moved largely away from the documentary thing because it's collapsed. The uh, the, the documentary business model has collapsed so it's nothing i can build my company around anymore and i have partners that i have to keep happy so feature films and drama that that is a much more lucrative place to be and yet the ufo thing still interests me and i still think that i have one film uh in me that i'd like to i have things that i like to say in a way frankly that nobody else i don't think has said it before and the ability to do that comes from being freed from the constraints that networks place on you because at the end of the day as Greg Bishop would say, you know, when you ask him, why does he do Radio Mysterioso? Greg will say, well, I do it because I want to do it. And if if other people like it, that's fantastic. Um, but I do it because I want to do it. So if I want to have Jacques Vallée on, I'd have Jacques Vallée. If I want to talk to Adam Go Rightly, I'll talk to Adam Go Rightly. And it's the same reason you do your show, Tim. And frankly, now it's the same reason I would make a documentary from here on in about UFOs. I do it because I want to do it. I just think that the way you and I want to do it here is the way that a lot of people have talked about it, like begging to see a film like this made, and it just hasn't been made yet. So, um,
0: yeah. And and so and maybe I should say this for the end of the interview, but like, you know, where the donations have been tepid at this point. I mean, is this the sort of thing, you know, the campaign runs out in a week? Uh, this is like we cross that bridge when we come to it decide what the future of this of this film project is at that point?
1: No, the film will still get made. You know what? At the end of the day, there are moments when I go, God, why am I even doing this? Um, I mean, we've raised, using the four-legged dog analogy, each leg on this dog was worth about $25,000. We've raised, thir- uh, so we need, we were looking for $25,000 from, um, from the community, let's call it. We've raised 1300 Now, yeah, we don't even have a paw. Yeah, we don't even have a toenail or whatever. Uh, look, I'll be, I'll be perfectly frank. I, it's been terribly disappointing because I, I've done a lot of promotion for this, um, and <clears throat> people haven't stepped up. Again, nobody owes you or me anything, but we just happen to be the two guys right now that are talking about making this kind of film. And if you want to see this kind of film made, forget about Tim and I, this contribute to the film. You're not contributing to us. You're contributing to the film. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. And so, we, we, you know, Stan Friedman's agreed to be in it. Uh, Kevin Randall, uh, David Clark in the United Kingdom, who, uh, you know, big with the psychosocial hypothesis, doesn't really do films anymore. But uh, David's agreed to be in it. Steve Mara in the United Kingdom. Uh, Nick and Greg, of course, will be in it. And you know, there's a, a long list of names, most of whom I haven't publicized yet, that are growing, that will be in this film. And it's going to look at things in a in a totally different way. You know what the film will be like, frankly? The film will be like an episode of Radio Mysterioso or Then All of America. The film will be a conversation amongst not, and I'm not just talking about people with you know talking heads sitting down, but the film itself, the the sort of tone. The philosophy of it will be like a conversation. All of these people having a conversation with themselves and also with the, the viewers and giving the viewers all the information they need, all of the, the theories and hypotheses they need to sort of sit back and for however long they want to think about this say, well, okay, it could be this, 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 or maybe this. And you know what? Um, maybe we're trying to be a little too highbrow here, Tim, because here's the thing. We were talking about Anthony Bregaglia earlier who um, who wrote that, you know, we were begging. Brigalia spends all this time writing about Roswell and harassing people like 89-year-old men and calling them up on the phone and saying, Hey, tell me the truth about Roswell. So, um, you know, maybe that's the film we should make. If Tim and I were real crooks, here's what we would do. I I actually thought about this. How do I get people interested in Beyond Best Evidence? Well, here's what I'll do. I'll put a post on my blog, and I'll make the title of the post, Disclosure Roswell Meyer Greer. Um, you know, just start yeah. adding the names of things that get hits on the Internet that people will contribute to or read and, and say, look, we're making a film about Roswell, new revelations, new, super new stuff, contribute. We probably have 50000 bucks by now. But instead what we want to do is make um, – it's the difference between that kind of ufology, if you want to call it, which is what I call Michael Bay ufology. It's like making Transformers you know, Hollywood churns these films out. It's the same stuff every single time. It's Michael Bay filmmaking. And what Tim and I are looking at doing, Tim hasn't heard this part yet, but it's Terrence Malick filmmaking. And hopefully people get the reference, because Malick has a new film uh, coming out called Tree of Life. But, um, you know, Thin uh, thin Red Line, um, he's made about five films in his career, all of which are, are sort of filmic tone poems that make people think, and that, at the end, you go, what the heck did I just see? <laughs> you know? Yeah. But, and you walk out with more questions than you had answers and certainly more questions than you had coming in. So, Roswell is the equivalent and all these other things that get so much, like Annie Jacobson has been on television repeatedly talking about this Area 51 stuff and, you know, which is bogus, too, but doesn't matter. It's still tied into the Area 51 cover-up disclosure Roswell meme, which is Michael Bay ufology. It is cookie-cutter. It is the same old, same old. It is, frankly, it's not even boring. It's insulting. And then there's the other type of, let's call it paranormology because I, I don't want to call it ufology. I think it's beyond just UFOs. And it's the kind of stuff you will hear from Greg and Nick, and you used to hear from Mac before he passed away, and you'll hear on Tim's show. And um, I think you'll hear from me. And there are other people that you'll hear it from too. You'll hear, you know what, two people who think I hate them. You'll hear it from Jeremy Bainey and Jeff Ritzman on Peritopia. We don't get along personally, but doesn't matter. I can like what I hear on the radio show. There are people out there, agree with them or disagree with them, who are doing things differently and interesting in different ways. Whitley Strieber is another one. A lot of what Whitley says I think is kind of maybe goofy, but he gets you people thinking. And that kind of sort of I don't even want to call it paranormal research. I want to call it thought experimenting, because frankly, I think that's what it is, and I think that's where we need to go. I think that's where ultimately this film will go, and that's what Tim and I are trying to do. I'm not letting you talk very much, Tim. I know. Well, I'm just
0: letting you go here. That's how we. That's you know. That's how the show works. You know that by I'm- now.
1: Yeah, no. Well, not really, because I haven't been on in years. So that's true. <laughs> that's true. Now I was just waiting here. I figure. I, I think we. I feel like we
0: should move away a little bit from the film now, because I think people sure. are going to be like, "What the hell, man? Like this is just an infomercial." But you know, like you said, this is the last interview you'll do about this, and you know, this is sort of the last push here. We want people to to understand what this is all about, because clearly. There's other people (laughs) who are working against it, (laughs) apparently, from what
1: I'm hearing now. um, Well, you know, they make snide remarks. What works against it, Tim, it's not just this film. It's what works against an intelligent conversation about UFOs in general. It works against what Greg does and what Nick does and what all of us do. And that is the sort of Michael Bay ufology, if you will, which... is just the same old, same old sort of stuff. Right, this
0: garbage, eminent disclosure crap that we see all the time and everything else. Yeah,
1: and, you know, people like us are fighting kind of – it's kind of an underground – it's weird. Within, quote, quote, ufology, which I don't consider myself a part of, but even within talking about the UFO phenomenon, there is ufology. That is the Michael Bay. And then there's the sort of rebellious underground guys – which is frankly what the study of the UFO phenomenon should be because it's an, in, it's an inherently revolutionary kind of ideal um, that really, uh, I was on Radio Mysteriosa the other night with Greg and Walter Bosley, and we were just sort of thought experimenting again. And, you know, this idea that when people talk, sorry, now, see, I've cut you off, Let me, but so let me say this. Go ahead. People, no,
0: I didn't, I didn't say anything.
1: <laughs> no, well, you were going to. When people like Bryce Zabel and Rich Dolan, and you know what, Rich I consider a friend, Bryce I've only ever met once, but he seems very nice. And I read their book, and it's a well-written book for what it is. But when they talk about disclosure and how – you just kind of read it. I did a post about this the other day on my blog, and it's like they're talking sort of about tweaking the system, which is, would basically be like you have a Republican government and you're going to put the Democrats in. So all they're talking about is changing parties, basically. So And the aliens will come down, and things will more or less – they actually have a chapter or something in there about how it w- would affect the law what? You know, Maybe we could sue the aliens or something. And to, and they're hailed. This is hailed as sort of a revolutionary thing. Let me tell you something. If there really are aliens and they come down and reveal themselves to us or you know, Jesus returned or some non-human intelligence or whatever, we're not going to have to worry about any of the things that they're talking about in after disclosure. Because when people like Steve Bassett talk about a paradigm shift, they don't have a clue what they're talking about. They're selling it to people in a way that they think people can wrap their minds around. In fact, probably they can wrap their minds around, whereas if there really is that sort of – I don't want to call it disclosure. I would call it contact with an advanced non-human intelligence. That will be so paradigm-shifting. It won't be paradigm-shifting. It will be paradigm-blowing. It will take everything we know and blow it out of the water. And that conversation is not being had, and that's one of the things, again, that we're going to talk about in beyond best evidence that if that moment comes two things one are we ready for it my short answer is no forget about the third world they're not even close we're 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 not close in the so-called developed world either i mean we're not even close to being ready for this and two if it just happened without anybody bothering to ask us what would happen to us all and i mean we're talking about some seriously revolutionary changes to the human condition And you know, frankly, I think at the end of the day, when the film gets made, I want people to be shocked, because I remember a lecture that Mac Tony's gave when I ran the New Frontiers Symposium. Um, For all those folks who think I'm a crook, I lost eight thousand dollars on that, but and I didn't even video, I didn't even videotape it. I did it so that I could bring these guys up who were friends, and we could have a thought experiment. And sixty people came and paid to see it, and Mac gave a lecture on posthumanism. And he started out by with no notes. That's how good Mac was. He went up and spoke for an hour and a half extemporaneously with not a single note. It was amazing. I wish I had filmed it, especially now, given that he's passed away. And he started off by saying, look, does the, the human race deserve to survive. And You know, jaws drop. Wait, we thought we were at a UFO conference. What now? (laughs) You know, like, where's Stan, where's cuddly Stan Friedman with his pictures of 40-year-old fusion rockets or whatever? (laughs) And um, the Betty Hill star map. Who's this guy saying, you know, my parents were in the audience and they were like, well. But I talked to my mom afterwards and she said, you know what, I really like that Mac Tony's guy. Didn't agree with everything he said, but uh, Mac's basic answer was he didn't know. At the end of his hour and a half, um, everybody I talked to, they said, look, wow. That guy made us think, and not in a way that we were expecting. And the question he was asking um, was sort of, are we ready, but also are we worthy of contact? Because there's this assumption amongst most people within the UFO community, especially the disclosure crowd that says, oh, well, of course we're ready. We deserve. We have a right to know. They assume the government's covering up. They assume that there is a non-human intelligence, aliens, and they assume they have a right to know. I think all three things are questionable. I don't think the government's covering covering up. But if they were, I would say good. And if I was part of the government, I'd do it too. Because all you have to do is walk around Beverly Hills in Los Angeles, and you'll realize that when you see a lady fumbling for her credit card to pay for the parking on her Lexus, and 10 feet away from her is a homeless person, who she won't even look at, that we are nowhere near being ready for contact with an advanced non-human intelligence as a species, but as individuals, maybe. Oh, anyway, sorry, preaching. I, I've gone from an infomercial to, a, to being an evangelical preacher. No, I, I, I
0: actually, yeah, I agree with what you're saying there. It, it seems like listening to, to that, the last part of what you're saying, is makes, just makes me think that, you know, in a weird sort of way, maybe we were better equipped to deal with this whole thing. Like back when it first started, you know, the modern era, I mean, you know, like in the 40s and the 50s and even the 60s, you know, like I feel like the human race, especially the Americans, have, you know, devolved to the point now where they're kind of morons and and people weren't like that back in the day. So maybe the window's closing anyway.
1: Well, it's an interesting question. As our technology increases, when the Gutenberg Bible was brought in, which was probably the major sort of defining moment in human history, where it, it took... You know, the written word, which at the time was religious, basically the Bible, um, out of the churches and was able to put it in the hands of the common people. And people were much more common back then. There was very much, you know, there was no middle class. There was you were rich and aristocratic or you were the poor guy in the field. That was a fundamental change that altered the way that humans interacted with each other. So there you go. The Gutenberg printing press. The Internet. And television, the last 50 years, the things that have made communication much more widespread, even radio, and allowed us to uh, interact and communicate with each other should have had the same effect, and yet it hasn't. Um, If anything, people have become lazier, dumber, and less involved. So the attachments that we have are much more superficial and with, with the rest of humanity. So sure, Hillary Clinton's right, we have a global village. It's just a global village where you never actually see your neighbors, and you don't really care about your neighbors in the way that you should. You just know that you have them, and every now and then you, you know, leave a note on their doorstep or something. So it's, 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 there's an awful lot of philosophical conversation that needs to go on about, because I think we are moving towards contact with an advanced non-human intelligence. It's inevitable. Scientists will tell you there's life out there, there might be life here, who knows. Sooner or later, someday, tomorrow, maybe not in our lifetime, probably not, but you never know. We're going to have to face that as a species. And you know what? It might be ourselves. For Battlestar Galactica fans, that non-human intelligence might be an intelligence we create. Well, okay, how do we deal with that? And those are the kinds of questions that, you know, we should be asking. So those are the kind of questions, too, that even as we go through the various possibilities, it'll be like, okay, so aliens from Zeta Reticuli, let's talk about that possibility. But let's also talk about what it might mean to make contact with them, how it will change us. Are we even ready for it psychologically, even though we think we are? I mean, this isn't like meeting, you know, the new kid that moves into the block, the guy who buys the house down the street from you yeah. and you invite him over for the barbecue. Hey, good to meet you, Ed. You're you're not from these parts, are you? Um, no, I'm, I'm from Alabama. Oh, wow, that's crazy. Tell me about Alabama. No, this is like, you know, this is Ed from Zeta Reticuli. Right. And Ed, Ed's got eight arms and a glowing head, and he's a thousand times smarter than you. Okay, um, Ed, do you like chicken, or do you want a hot dog? So these are the kinds of questions that we need to ask in this film, which is why it'll be feature length. It's not going to be some 45-minute doc for television. This one's going to be 85-90 80, minutes, and, you know, we'll we'll give these sorts of issues a rigorous workout. And, yeah, I think that's a conversation that it's, we're, we're long past due having. So you'll have philosophers in this film, not a group of people that, generally speaking, you ever hear talking about UFOs or the paranormal. But they have something to say, and even if they're not specifically talking about the UFO phenomenon, um, the things that they're saying, the way that they're thinking, the questions that they're raising, are things that impinge on what might happen to us and how we would approach contact with a non-human intelligence. So, so yeah, all of that stuff. I, I'm really now I'm going to be quiet, Tim. You have two minutes. It's your own show Go ahead Um, But you can see this stuff excites me Like instead of just talking about The RB47 case or Roswell One of those two things is better than the other Leave it all behind And it's so exciting The the prospect of being able to discuss And and put this in its proper perspective And get the gee whiz back in it Like wow What does this mean to us It's the kind of thing Mac would talk about And that I miss and so, um, as much as anyone, this film—you know—he was one of the guys who encouraged me to do that kind of film, and um, you know, to have the opportunity to do it is just like terribly exciting.
0: Well, it is exciting. Well, it's good to see this. This sort of brings me back to what I was uh, alluding to, I guess, in the introduction, which is, um, you know, we we had you on a few years ago talk about ufology and everything, and and you know, in the intervening years, uh, we sort of developed this year year end show, which I know you're familiar with. Uh, the whole the whole backlash this year uh, to to the year end show, where it seemed like Greg and and Nick were sort of, I wouldn't say burned out necessarily, but but sort of uh, tired, I guess you could say, of the fact that ufology has been like spinning its wheels here for like the last five, six years, maybe even a decade at this point. Um, so it's good to hear that you're excited about things because because it's hard at times, to get excited about this field because it's, it's fallen into this malaise, uh, as you said, this underground war, if you will, between the two sort
1: of uh, philosophies of, of how to examine this issue. Yeah, look, um, Vaney's, which I haven't read, he's got a book just out called Urgency, right? I kind of sort of read the blurb on it. I haven't read the book yet. I probably will. I don't. I, I kind of get what he's talking about. Has it got anything to do with the UFO phenomenon? Um, a lot of people would look at it and go, ooh, no. But what he's talking about is ourselves, as I understand it, and uh, trying to become better at, at who we are. And, and Baney can correct me if I'm wrong. But I sort of – that's, to me, the thumbnail sketch of, I think, what he's getting at. Good. Those are the kind of conversations we should be having. And those are the kinds of things that when you think about contact with an advanced non-human intelligence, it opens all that stuff up to us. So are people bored? or um, frustrated, or fed up, or whatever you want to use with ufology, sure, because ufology is like going to see another Michael Bay film. It's the same old, same old. What people, I am convinced what thinking people want is a different conversation, and there are people having those different conversations. And So, sure, um, I know the episode you're talking about where Greg and Nick came across as kind of crotchety, but that was an episode where you're doing a year-end review of ufology, Here's a sort of a different question. I was having a conversation what was it, with Don Ecker, I think, about a year ago. I was on Greg's show. And um, I was tweaking Don because Don's a right-wing American uh, and very, you know, much pro-military and stuff. So I, I heightened up my own socialistic tendencies to the point of communism because, you <laughs> know, it was fun. And um, I think Don at one point said, uh, you know, I think it was after when we were at the House of Pies, said, uh, I can't understand how you could be a communist. And I looked at him and I said, Don, have you looked around the world lately? The question isn't why I'm a communist. The question is, why aren't you? (laughs) We have serious problems and our system hasn't made them better. It's made them worse. So why don't we start looking for new ideas? And I'm not talking Stalinistic communism or anything. And I was was half joking, but the principle is, is the same. It's not the new ideas that scare me, as John Cage, the composer John Cage once said. It's the old ones because they haven't worked. And in the very small sort of world that is, quote, quote, ufology, nothing's worked. People are having the same conversation. And you know what? If 95% of the population wants, who, who even looks at UFOs, wants to hear about Roswell, then I say two things. One, good for them. It's a free country. And two, you're lost to me. You're not who I'm talking to. You're not who I want to talk with. And I think that's what you got from Greg and Nick, and I think that's what you get from a lot of these people. Instead, give me the five percent or the ten percent or whatever that. I would hope it would be. But let's start. Let's start a movement. I don't want movement's the wrong word, but let's start a move towards <laughs> a more intelligent, informed conversation, a broader conversation. Greg, when we were on Radio Mysterioso the other night, uh, and I hope Greg follows through with this. He he originally um, had a magazine in the 90s called the Excluded Middle, yep. which I thought is a great term, but also kind of you know bored some of the ideas that underpinned the, the Excluded Middle from Fort. But you know that great idea that there, there's this excluded middle ground out there um, of ideas and people, and we're going to examine that. And so Sunday night when we we're on Radio Mysterioso, I said, look, it's now time for the Included Middle, and let's start it tonight. With you, me, and Walter, Greg, we are the first three members of the included middle. It's um, it's a club that you can be in as long as you're not a believer and you're not a disbeliever. So don't tell me that you know that aliens from Zeta Reticuli are here and talking to our government. You can't commit. But don't tell me that you know that there's absolutely nothing to the UFO phenomenon and there's nothing to ghosts or anything else. You're not allowed in either. You, you two groups go off and do your mixed martial arts fighting cage match type stuff to your heart's content, you anonymous um, fucks on the Internet that just want to <laughs> yell at each other because, frankly, you can't get laid. You guys go do that. Now, for the included middle, everybody else. Like, we're, you know, we've been excluded. Now we're going to create this space where we'll include everyone. So um, I don't know if Greg's going to do anything with it. It's his to do with But it kind of just hit me as we were talking, you know, this idea of an included middle of people who are smart enough and, frankly, courageous enough, I guess, in a way, um, honest enough, intellectually honest enough to say, I don't know, I just don't know, but I'm interested, and there's something here worth looking into as long as we can all sort of agree that we don't know. So Greg can think one thing about something, and we, we did. We had this conversation. I, you, folks, I don't want to plug another show, but I know he's
2: you Yeah, family. yeah, I've been
1: on and there he, plenty of times. So plug away. Yeah, go ahead. He, and he plugs your show. So, folks, go to radiomysterioso.com. It's the most recent episode with Walter and Greg and I. And we talked about this run of synchronicities or coincidences that I had while I was in Los Angeles. So, and it, uh, I've written about a number of them on my blogs. The, the, a couple actually happened in the studio where Walter and I just, and think, you know, it's like, oh, crazy, that's weird. And then you start thinking, well, okay, is is a non-human intelligence, what is our universe? What is it? Is there a purpose? Is there a design? Are we part of a moving part of it? All these kinds of things. Is there a non-human intelligence trying to make contact with us? Does it do it subconsciously through our dreams? Maybe it does it, slow, weirdly guides us in certain ways by showing us certain things. Um, at a level like coincidences or deja vu or whatever that we can't access yet Maybe purposefully they do it that way or not who knows all of these things anyway Are things that when you have the series of coincidences that I did not one not two and not little things that you could write off but personal things that that impacted you know like we're directed It's like being a Ouija board session not having your hand on the Ouija board And um, the people who do are spelling things out that only you could know. And I know people who've had that happen to them, smart, intelligent people that I trust. Um, Both of the two that I'm thinking of both have law degrees, um, probably both smarter than I am and honest as the day is long, and they, neither one of them will go near a Ouija board because of what happened to them 20 years ago. You know, you, you hear those kinds of stories, then you experience it yourself, and you go, you know, it's not just UFOs. It's what Nick Redfern's been talking about for years. He say we should study Bigfoot at the same time as we study UFOs, at the same time as we study ghosts. It might all be, and I think it maybe it is, all interrelated as, as some non-human intelligence contacting us, not on a societal level, the way Rich Dolan, and Bryce Zabel and the disclosure people think, you know, like they're going to land on the White House lawn or whatever. The contact, and here, you know, here's what I would say about disclosure. It's already happened. It's happened to individuals. Each and every day it happens to individuals, whether it's Mozart, you know, having flashes of inspiration, or whether it's me having coincidences that perhaps are trying to impart some message. And, We just have to try and find a way to figure out what it all means and how it's all related to us and to what we would call UFOs or to ghosts or what 500 years ago or 700 years ago, as Valet would point out, they were calling dragons or leprechauns or will-o'-the-wisps. All of this stuff might be interrelated. I think it is, and I think it has something to do with our universe, our reality, and our consciousness. And that is not something that anybody who knew me five years ago would have ever expected to come out of my mouth. But that's, you know, from the people I've met and known, Greg, Nick, Mac, and on and on, you know, the smart ones who think not straight ahead, but they think sideways too. I think, you know, those are the kinds of people that have influenced me and made me think differently about it all. And now, you know, I'm happy to sort of take that ball, run with it with their help and your help and, uh, and try and find a different way of doing things, a different way of looking at things. And yes, you know, maybe a different movement. Not ufology, not any of this stuff, but something new and something different. And included middle, as Greg might say, and I hope he will. Well, ufology's a bowel movement, so what do you expect? Nice, Tim. Nice. Thank you. Thank you. I was well, sitting on that see, for a while. I go on for twenty minutes and then Tim just comes in and puts the exclamation mark on it. <laughs> Did you say you were sitting on that for a while? I know, I was waiting to see That
0: would be funny. <laughs> yes, yeah. I did say that, no pun intended. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Very clever, though. Um, well, you know, I, I kid ufology, but at the same time, it's it's just, you know, I'm sort of running out of steam on, on the subject. Well, not, not really the subject, really, but I guess the – because I don't consider myself a part of ufology either. I'm, I'm an observer of all this. I'm, I'm the esoteric observer. That's sort of our, our tagline. It's, you know, I just find ufology to be – stagnant. And and I've advocated for sort of this change in, in public perception of ufology. Obviously, that's not something that you can just do. But it goes to what you were saying earlier, which is like, I think, you know, collectively, ufology needs to fess up to the world and admit that we don't know what's going on. And we're asking people to take a second look at this. And if I think if that was the case, then maybe we'd see more traction in the mainstream from people who are sort of on the fence about this. And and I think that's important, but at the same time, it's a, it's a pipe dream. I don't see how ufology can get there. It's going to take a whole other generation or, or, or something else to really turn that public perception around and and get the mainstream people to realize that it's not necessarily aliens, that we don't know. Like somewhere along the line, the, the public just got convinced that it's aliens, and it's like, we, but we don't know that, so we have a complete disconnect between what the public thinks UFOs are and what we actually know they are, which is <laughs> that we don't know what they are. So it's a very challenging sort of uh, problem, I think. Ufology's
1: greatest problems are, its own, are, are, are of its own creation, almost. Sure, and the biggest problem with so-called ufology is that it thinks of itself as ufology. So it thinks of itself as exclusive. You know, it's like... Um, It's just UFOs. It can't be related to anything else. So you can go to the so-called nuts-and-bolts ufologists, and they will run away screaming if you mention ghosts or Bigfoot or consciousness. It's all new-agey to them or kooky. You go to the ghost people, you mention UFOs, by the way, and they will do the same thing. They will say, UFOs, what what the heck are you involved with there? Ghosts are the serious thing. We can measure it scientifically with our little EMF meter. And I – so – and I just say, look, a pox on all of your houses. It's paranormal. And, and I think the biggest, well, this will blow people's minds who know me, the biggest problem that so-called ufology or ghost hunters or any of these people, you know, virtually none of them have the intellectual wherewithal to comprehend what they're dealing with. And you know what? If that makes me sound elitist, boo-hoo, sorry. But um, I'm not talking about the people who follow, the people that are hungry for knowledge. I think they're out there. I think the people that have been, um, for the most part, writing about it and talking about it are are losers. So the people who want serious information and want informed discussion have been extremely poorly served by most people. Again, there are exceptions like Greg or whomever that proved the rule. But the problem has been that so many of these people are so insecure that they've spent so much time trying to get science or the mainstream to pay attention to them, and you know what? I was part of that, too, for a while. Uh, and I've finally come around to sort of understanding and or deciding that that doesn't matter. And it goes back to my music career. At the end of the day, it, during my music career, I would rather play to 50 people who really dug my music than, uh, and I've done that, or even 10 people, to a 1,000 people, and I've done that, too, who really weren't listening. You know, I just... Our band just happened to be the closing act on a Saturday night, and it was 1 o'clock, and they danced. You could put the sound of two chickens squawking, and they would have been dancing and trying to get laid to it because they were so drunk. Give me the 50 people who want to hear the music, not the 1,000 people that just want to dance. It could be Lady Gaga or it could be my band. And I think Ufology has been so desperately trying, because they're so insecure, to get that 1,000 people to to get science to take us seriously. And I don't mean us, but I'm now talking to them. We we need science. And science is, and it's because they're involved in this sort of Manichaean conversation with the disbelievers who tell them that science is the way to go. You have to have the scientific methodology and repeatability and blah, blah, blah. And they respond to that. And the two of them, like I said, are like mixed martial artists, cage fighters, you know, going at each other. And the truth is, I don't think science is very helpful in studying the paranormal. I think that philosophy and history uh, and those kinds of things are more helpful disciplines in terms of trying to get a grip on what the paranormal might be. And, yeah, sure, religion, or at least spirituality, spiritual studies, if you want to call it that. And does science have a role to play? Sure. Bring a guy like Michio Kaku to the table or Jacques Vallée, and, but let them think outside the box. But it is not the exclusive domain of science. And frankly, if you are dealing with an advanced non-human intelligence, let's assume it's from another planet, too. Let's even just go with that explanation. To get there from here, they would be so far in advance of us that whatever science we have, that arrogance of, of modern humanity, that we know it all. Well, i got news for you. Nothing that we know could even begin to allow us to comprehend what they must know. Right. from a scientific From a scientific point of view. So, their science would be beyond us, but what might not be beyond us is our ability potentially to maybe have a conversation with them, if not the kind of conversation you and I are having, although actually it might be a lot like that where they just talk to us and one of us li- <laughs> one of us just listens <laughs> so 'm the alien and, and you 're the human, but you know at least maybe we can clue in just a bit, even if it 's only a bit. You know, of this galactic conversation that Kaku talks about, or maybe other worlds or, or other dimensions. Or, you know what, take the old school, God. You know, do you have a conversation with God every day, whatever God may or may not be, this non-human intelligence? No, most people wouldn't. But maybe you get a glimpse of it. Maybe it comes an inspiration, or maybe just a way of thinking to be better, you know, to our fellow human beings or whatever. Um that might be and i think that is what the ufo phenomenon and all of this paranormal stuff has to teach us and that's not the purview of science and any good scientist will tell you they can tell you how things work but they can't tell you why things work like the sort of existential questions and that is that is something that's all of that's for all of us and for all of us to find our own way and i think
2: that's it sounds
1: very new agey um but i you know i've come after 10 years i've sort of come to that conclusion that that's where we need to go and so beyond best evidence that's the title says it all look you, it, there's the evidence we've got everything we know there's something going on let's try and figure out what it is and more importantly let's try and figure out what it means for all of us and let's encourage people to think about what it might mean for all of us because if you take take the idea let's just spitball this one, Tim, because I wrote something about it, and I find it fascinating after having walked through L.A., which has the best and worst that America has to offer on the same block. So you can (laughs) see the best and worst on the same block. And and by best, I mean, say, most materialistic. Fine. So, which is what most people would aspire to, the Lexus and the Nice House and everything. Yeah. So, if we live in our society, if we're dealing with a... I saw this lecture that Michael Persinger gave about the possibility that someday we might be all interconnected you know through remote viewing and enhanced consciousness we might have the ability i might be able to read your thoughts you might be able to read mine we we could at least feel so if i kick you as i said on greg's show the other night if i kick you in the groin you're going to hurt but then i would feel your hurt yeah i would be less inclined to kick you in the groin if it was going to hurt me too if i could feel that that idea of an empathic society Where Not a Borg-like thing, but where we can all kind of feel what everybody else is feeling. So if you live in that kind of society with that kind of enhanced consciousness, you are far less likely to just get out of your Lexus, put the money in the parking meter, and walk past the homeless person if you actually feel what the homeless person is feeling there and, and that night and whatever. And I think that is the fundamental change in human consciousness we need to go through. And you know what? As new agey as it sounds, I think that's the kind of thing that thinking about an advanced non-human intelligence will focus our minds in on. Because my belief is that any advanced non-human intelligence that has survived what we've gone through and what I think we are we have still to go through as a civilization, anyone who gets beyond that will have developed that kind of empathy. The alternative is you would destroy yourself or you'd become such a horrible, horrible civilization where only the evil survive and kill people that they would have made the presence known to us already, raped, pillaged, and plundered us the way we did with the aboriginals many centuries ago. Um, So I think the fact that that hasn't happened is a symbol, a signpost that we are dealing with and have been for for all of human history with an advanced non-human intelligence, call it God or aliens or or whatever you want to call it, that is interacting with us in certain ways, not to force us to do anything, not to um, make us do anything, but to give us as individuals, as we each come to a place where we can perhaps accept it in our own way, and I think different people accept it in different ways, an opportunity to advance not only ourselves but through our collective acts, humanity, and someday hopefully reach the level that they 're at where they're sitting there waiting for us, going Hi, nice to meet you in person, you know, yeah, so it 's kind of like getting it 's kind of like getting emails or, or in the old days, pen pal letters from this really this nice girl in Luxembourg or something, as the Smith song would go. And, you know, then eventually you meet her, and you find out, wow, okay, um, yeah, she's really – she is as cute as as she said she was. Um, No, that's Anthony Weiner. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) I was wondering (laughs) where that was going. Little, little American contemporary political reference for you there. Yeah. But, sure, you know, all of these things, it all sounds weird and goofy. Talking about the RB47 case, the nuts and bolts mechanics of the case doesn't get me excited. Well, there's
0: nowhere to go with that stuff anymore. That's the—that's kind of what I was getting at about the Malays. There's just nowhere. Where do you take that? What do you do with that? You just can't. You know, right. So it's a really good UFO case, so what? If it was that fucking good, then the, this—then it be over. This would be yeah. over. So it's but, so it's clearly not good enough. And and I don't think any case, you know, we'll know the case is
1: good enough when it's when it's over.
0: Well, <laughs> that's sure. You
1: know, it's it's the well, frustration it's never, part, I guess. My point is, it's never going to be over. Um, because we're we're it's a very long road that we're on in terms of becoming um, worthy or able, depending on which way you want to look at it, yeah. of contact with a non-human intelligence in advance of ours. So we're on that road. Yeah, I look at I've looked at enough cases. I've done enough ghost investigation. I've done enough weird stuff over ten years to convince me that there if not beyond a reasonable doubt, certainly on the balance of probabilities, far more likely than not, there is a non-human intelligence interacting with humanity. Yeah. So, let's now ask the question, and I think UFOs are a part of that, um, but they're only a part of it. So now, instead of talking about ufology or ghostology or whatever, let's just talk about an advanced non-human intelligence interacting with us. What could it be? And what does it mean? And I guess that's what Beyond Best Evidence is about. Now, Having said that, we will also talk to people who say, look, um, you know, because I want to give everybody their say who will say, look, there's, you know, you can explain all these cases away, Um, but they will not be getting nearly as much. You know, that'll be kind of like a footnote because I've tried talking to those folks, um, the hardcore ones, and they're as bad as the true believers. A guy like David Clark is different. He takes a very folkloric view of it, and um, he's not so close-minded to say that uh, there's nothing to it. But he, the thing about a guy like Clark is that interests me, he he's like Valet. He he says, "Look, this has been going on before 1947, and it's all interrelated." Right. And then he has a particular explanation for it. Well, that's fine. That's cool. At least you get that it's all interrelated and that it's been going on for a very long time. So, um, so he'll be part of the mix too.
0: So this is a deeply philosophical Paul Kimball that we've got on the show here tonight. This is different than uh, than what I, you know have recalled from our
1: previous conversations. Yes, but our previous conversations were usually when you and I were drunk. So That's true. That's true. Those were philosophical in a different way. <laughs> hey Timmy, Coors Light or CORES? What do you think? <laughs> yeah, those weren't I don't know, poly. those weren't even fit for Internet airwaves. <laughs> yeah, no, it's like, I don't know, I feel like Samuel Adams. I can't <laughs> do your accent. It's just I can't do it. Uh, um, but Sure, well you know, I'm a a. I've always been a philosophical guy. Like uh, I studied history and politics and philosophy, and even within law school, you know, those kinds of things would come up. You'd have to think, how does law impact people? And, uh, you know, it didn't come out in necessarily in my UFO work, uh, so-called work. But, uh, but I think if people look, they'll see that it did, especially in the Friedman film, talking about the journey that a person would take, but, um, you know, also in the other films as well. But uh, if you've only seen my UFO films, I've done um, you know, classical music and all sorts of other stuff. So it comes out in all my films. But you know, that's just part of who I am, and I, it's just part of who Nick is, or you are, or Greg. So you might see Nick talking about Roswell for the umpteenth time, but unless you've actually talked to Nick, you, you sort of don't necessarily realize that it's a job for him, and he has you know, far broader interest than just talking about Roswell even if he might also be interested in Roswell. so. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. You know what you missed? It's the second what? day in a row I got a new shirt, new tie, bought in David Donnie. I like it. Yeah, well, why don't you say something out I loud? I said huh? something to you We're two We're taking a ago. break. There's more PTI to come, including the Celtics-Lakers rivalry.
0: You're listening to Banal of America Audio.
1: What do you want, some sort of award for wardrobe? Good night, Cannon. I bought six shirts. It's four to go. Open your <laughs> yeah.
0: It's important to have... To not be have this tunnel vision, and that that's another disappointment I've learned over the years doing this show and talking to people in general. And you you touched on it earlier. It's like it, there's people who just don't want to mix the mix the brands, if you will. They don't want to mix genres at all. And it's like why? It's like people who are a fan of one team in a sport, and then like won't you know if they're out of the playoffs or something, they they won't watch anymore at all. Yeah. It's like do you you see so really just a fan of the uniform? You're not a fan of the sport.
2: And that's that's unfortunate.
1: Well, you know what? The Red Sox are bumped out of the playoffs. I'd be unhappy. But if it was the Yankees in the World Series against, I don't know, a team in the National League, I don't the Mets, there you go. Pretty hard for me to find a team in that series to choose for because I hate them equally in different ways. I'd still watch the games because I'm a baseball fan, even if uh, it's the Yankees and the Mets. So, yeah, good example. I mean, tonight the NHL playoffs are on. It's the Bruins, who I hate, and the Canucks, who I don't really care about. How can you hate the Bruins? Um, yeah, another horrible team. I'm still gonna go watch the game when we're done talking because it's hockey, and I like hockey. So you know you, yeah, that's a perfectly good example. Um I think everybody it, it's a challenge. I think this film, I think this fundraising raising project too, is a challenge. It is. At the end of the day, um, as I said, they don't owe us anything, but you know what? they owe themselves something. and if if that means that instead of buying another happy meal at McDonald's for five or six bucks, they contribute 5 bucks to make a film that they want to see, then great. It's kind of a put-up-or-shut-up moment, frankly, and I don't have a problem saying that um, for, for people interested in the subject because a lot of people talk about wanting a different conversation. a lot. That's great. You can sit back and talk about how we need a revolution or how we need to do things differently, but if you go out and you pull the lever for the same two parties every time, guess what? Or you don't even bother pulling the levers. Steve Earle would say, "If you don't vote, don't bitch."
2: Exactly. Well, technically,
1: yeah. technically, you still have the right to bitch. You know, as far as I'm concerned, I have the right to completely ignore what you say because, as far as I'm concerned, you're a lousy citizen. You couldn't even get off your ass and go out and vote. In the last federal election in Canada, I think only 62 percent. A fundamental an election that had the chance to fundamentally and probably has fundamentally changed Canadian politics for the next 10 or 20 years. Really? Get off your ass and vote. And I think 62% of my fellow citizens voted. So to the other 38%, I would say, look, I would rather talk to one of the guys who voted for the Conservative Party, who I dislike intensely. I I will talk to them before I'll talk to you, you non-voter. Because even though I disagree with everything they say, at least they took part and they made a difference. Whereas you, what did you do? You sat home and you just waited for other people to do something. So you get what you pay for kind of thing. And you pay what you get for, too. So, yeah, you know what? If this doesn't work out, I'm never going to make another film about UFOs again anyway. So if I burn a whole bunch of bridges right now and piss a whole bunch of people off, too bad. I don't care. Um, It's not about popularity. It's not about anything like that. It's about I want to have a conversation. I want to have it with people who care and who are interested and want to be part of the team. And sure, only one of us of that whole team can actually go and make the film. But at the end of the day, I really do view it as a team effort. I can't do it without them. I should say you and I can't do it, although I'm the director, so whatever. We can't do it without them. I see how it is. Here's the quick pro (laughs) quote. They can't do it without us. And if it isn't you and I, then it would have to be somebody else who would do it and create that kind of film that would give them what they're looking for. So it's a symbiotic relationship. And uh, yeah, folks, we need your help. And you know what? The truth is I think you need ours too. I think you need this kind of film. I think you want it, and if you do want it, and you do think you need it. Then I think it's incumbent on you to contribute. I'm not talking a thousand bucks. I'm talking five. And if that seems like begging or shilling, too bad. I, I, I make no apologies for it.
0: Yeah. Well, hey, you're not trying to get
1: your uh, the brakes changed on your BMW or anything like that, so I don't have a BMW. I have a seven-year-old Honda. But you know what? <laughs> At the end of the day, even if I had a BMW, so what? uh a lot of people who are interested in the UFO phenomenon drive nice cars they live in nice houses i assume um
0: that's cuz that's they don't work in the ufo field
1: yeah probably <laughs> or you, five bucks you know at the end of the day five bucks or 10 bucks for a film that that might make a difference uh i think that's probably worth it and you know in case anyone's wondering um I don't just take, I give, too. So there are plenty of other campaigns on Indiegogo with people I know, friends, that I've contributed to myself because I believe in them or I believe in the projects. So it's it really is the ultimate democratization of the filmmaking financing process. I think it's a good thing as a filmmaker. Forget the UFO stuff. Forget Beyond Best Evidence. I think it's a terribly exciting thing because it will allow filmmakers to make the kinds of films that the the dreaded mainstream media just doesn't really let you make anymore, and that's—I think that's fine. It's what musicians knew years ago: the old DIY thing, do it yourself, build a community, give folks to help you, and then—and um, then you know, make, make a better mousetrap. Is the uh, what is it? The old saying goes: build a better mousetrap. Exactly. Yeah. So
0: it's safe to say you give and
1: receive. Um, yes, Tim. Yes, it is. <laughs> Oh, oh my! I know. Hey, I wasn't—I wasn't the one on the floor of reflections dancing there. So <laughs> that's all I'm gonna say.
0: Oh, now you're sending people running to their Google machines.
1: Uh, it's a club. It's a club in Halifax, folks. Look it up and. It <laughs> <very popular there. laughs> Let's just say, you know, I'm a favorite there.
0: All right. Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> um, well, you know, it's tough because in the in the field too, there's. I don't know what it's like in the ghost field, but, you know, in ufology and a lot of these paranormal things, it's like th- there's this stigma of, of making money anyway. Where it's like any money gets involved, people get really touchy and everything. It's very strange. It's like they think that pursuing answers to these mysteries is like some higher calling and that you should be like a, like a priest or something. I mean, you know, shouldn't make any money. You shouldn't have any material, anything. You know what I mean? I mean, I got chastised by somebody once on Facebook because I was, I put a post about about the uh, you know about the Celtics game or something like that, and this idiot starts lambasting me on Facebook, saying this was last year during the uh, oil spill. And he was like, "How can you waste time caring about basketball when you should be talking about the BP oil spill?" And it's like, you know, dude, you don't have the right to tell me what I should spend my time doing just because I'm a member of the media here. Like this is yeah. ridiculous. I don't get you know. I mean, that was one of the most ridiculous exchanges I've ever gotten into, and it's like, you're wasting your time bothering me about this, so my time, you own my time, you own what I should be thinking and doing just because I produce this show? Like, fuck you, dude.
1: Yeah, nobody owns anybody else's time. Uh, I was on Coast to Coast once, and and a few people complained because in a three-hour show, coming back from a uh, commercial break... I was, I was in Santa Ana filming uh, Best Evidence, and so I was doing the interview from a hotel room. And the Stanley Cup playoffs were on, and um, there was a Canadian team in the finals, They, Edmonton Oilers. They eventually lost. So I was watching, you know, with the volume off, I was keeping an eye on it out of the corner of my eye during commercial breaks. I was totally focused on George and the show when I was, you know, on. But there are, as you would know, Tim, working for C2C, there's, there's long commercial breaks. You know, you've got a phone up to your ear. So what do you do? Well, I watch the hockey game. Came back. The Oilers had just scored a goal. I went, George went, whatever his question was, blah, 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 blah. Steven Grieger, blah, blah, blah. And I went, hey, George, just a second. I just want to say as a Canadian, woo-ha, the Edmonton Oilers uh, are ahead or just one. Yay. And then I went right back and answered his question. There were people who were offended that in the three hours that I was on Coast to Coast, which is a really long time, folks, I took, I don't know, 40 seconds to mention hockey, you know, like the real world, something. And uh, he wasn't offended. I think he he got a good chuckle out of it. But sure, you know, I mean, like, the other thing, too, is lighten up. uh, It's all part of the, what is it, the the old REM uh, song, Life's Rich Pageant. Uh, Actually, that was an album, not a song. But yeah, it's it's all part of Life's Rich Pageant. So you can't spend... You're all of your time just so obsessed with this. Having said that, it's also good to put things into perspective. So you know, it's good to have your outlet. It's good to have sports or whatever. Those things are not inherently evil, and yet um, we do need to kind of think of them as bread and circuses, and we want, we need to make sure that we are no more distracted by them than we are by anything else. Exactly. Uh, so, yeah, but you can kind of have a bit of all of it. I mean, if you just – no matter how healthy fruit is for you, if all you eat is fruit, you're you're just not going to do very well. You kind of have to have protein and Don't you get scurvy? Right. No, you get scurvy if you don't eat fruit. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. So, sure, if you're – yeah, you could be on a boat in the old days sailing across the ocean. They could be giving you um, the best meat possible. Mmm, yummy steak every night. And you'll still get scurvy because you're not eating limes. You're not getting – so you have to have a bit of all of it, and that relates – freaky, Tim, how this all comes back – that relates to this whole UFO thing to the paranormal. You can't just look at UFOs. You have to view it as part. It is one of the food groups in the paranormal dining experience. You like that? Yeah, I like I go, that. I thought you
0: were going to say in the paranormal pyramid.
1: No, because it's not a pyramid anymore. I, Your yeah. government has just come out with the new plate. So <sighs>
0: What do you mean a new... Oh, okay, yeah. <laughs> they, yeah they meant like one of those collector plates.
1: No, no. Yeah, they're begging. No, it's the... <laughs> <laughs> maybe they are. I don't know. No, the the food pyramid's gone, and I was reading in USA Today or whatever. The, the No, it's the New York Times. The plate. It's like a plate. Yeah. Which, frankly, makes more sense. It's like because, a pie chart or something, right? Yeah. How many people do you know that um, that actually get their food from a pyramid anymore? Egyptians. Yeah, I don't even think the Egyptians get their
0: food from the pyramid. So, um, yeah, yeah anyway. that, that was just a reach on my end. But, you know, see it's something we haven't talked about before. It might be interesting to sort of explore is uh, I, I hesitate to really over uh, cover this whole thing, but the whole 2012 thing. I mean, it's just natural that it's going to keep coming up, obviously, until December 21st. But, I mean, you know, you're – In this philosophical point of view, I've been saying you know, for the last few years that this is really – obviously, I don't think anything serious is going to happen, and I think that it's going to hurt a lot of us because even if you don't believe in 2012 and everything, the whole paranormal community is going to be painted with this brush of being gullible idiots, which, right or wrong, is (laughs) unfortunate if if you're like me saying that nothing is going to happen – So, you know, in general, you know, what's your overall thought on all this? I mean, for all I know, you may be, you know, you may be ready to uh, join that guy there who's going to kill himself on 2012. Is he still planning on killing himself? I forget his name now.
1: Peter Gersten. Yeah. Yes. I I defend his right to do whatever he wants. He can do
0: whatever he wants. I don't care. Yeah.
1: Just – which, again, Anthony Bregalia uh, was um, – you know what? I don't want to make it personal. Again, I have to remember to write – practice what I preach. But there were people who – I think probably with a good heart we're saying Peter Gerstin uh, is mad and we need to get the authorities to stop him to doing whatever, blah, blah, blah. You know what, Peter Gerstin, I've met him, um, I don't agree with him, but he has every right to do what he wants to do and to believe what he wants to believe. And there's a billion of people on this planet that basically, as I wrote, follow a guy who committed suicide, de facto suicide. Jesus, he knew what was going to happen. I mean, if you're on the donkey, you're heading into Jerusalem, and you're telling everybody around you, hey, look, I'm going to do some crazy stuff, get arrested, and they're going to crucify me. Um, Excuse me? You know if yeah. you know how that's going down That what is that but a suicide? so you know that's kind of what Gersten was talking about doing, taking this leap of faith because he believes that at at that point in twenty twelve on december twenty first um a cosmic portal is going to open, and he has to take a leap of faith um from a philosophical and intellectual point of view, even if I'm not going to take that leap of faith with him, I respect the man for the having the courage of his convictions, so do it or don't, but it's you know. It's his Obviously, choice. It's not, yeah, yeah. It's his choice. Ultimately, it's an expression of free will, and I think that's, I think that's great. So, 2012 is anything going to happen? No, I don't think so, um, for a whole host of reasons. However, um, it might focus people's. It might serve as one of those dates that, if we're smart about it, could focus people's attention on who we are, where we are at this point in our journey as a species or as individuals. You know, if, if it's one of those moments where, as a collective, we can kind of step back and go, okay, where are we? Like, what does this mean? What if the world did end today or change today? Are we ready for it? You know, where do we stand? How have we lived our lives? Has it, has it all been worth it? Whatever. I think if it has that effect on people – Then that's a good thing. And so when December 22nd rolls around and everyone gets up and goes, hey, okay, um, at least maybe then they'll have taken a few moments. And I think an awful lot of people who would never admit it are going to at least think about it for a second or two or three you know, like even a, a scientist that, oh, there's nothing to it, um, a true disbeliever in any 2012 prophecies or whatever. Yeah. Somewhere in the back of their mind, I think they're, it's like when you take off in a plane. You could be the world's biggest atheist, let me tell you something. You get know, a little turbulence as you're heading up. Somewhere in the back of your mind, there's a little part of you going, hmm, okay, God, look. <laughs> you know, um, I don't believe in you, but in case you do exist, um, <laughs> you know, maybe... That we, we get out of this okay or something. Right. So, there's no
0: atheists in the foxhole.
1: Exactly. And, and I think that that's probably going to be true around 2012, that I think it is going to be a moment where an awful lot of people on this planet are going to just think, hmm, where are we? I mean, you know what? I hope it's that moment because, frankly, I think we're in a pretty lousy place, all things considered, especially where we could be and where we should be. So if it makes people pause and kind of take that moment and say, look, where are we, then I think it's a good thing. And sure, there will be some people who are completely nuts, who go way too far. It wouldn't surprise me if there's a couple of um, Heaven's Gate kind of things, you know, the mass suicides and everything. And that's different than what Gersten's talking about doing. He makes it very clear he's only talking about himself and his own path, and nobody should follow him. They should do what they want to do, which is different than getting 80 people in a room and feeding them poison Kool-Aid. So... Is there going to be that kind of um, premillennial sort of post-apocalyptic, whatever sort of thing? Yeah, sure, but that's been happening throughout American, throughout human history. Everyone Google Millerites, you know, in the 19th century, this religious movement where they kept predicting the end of days and God's return. Like that guy who did it a couple weeks ago. Right. That nothing new. That's um, something pretty solid within almost every major religious tradition. So 2012 um, is just going to be part and parcel of that continuum. But because it's not linked to any specific religion, I think it might sort of go beyond, you know, hey, the Christians are just saying it, or hey, the Jews are just saying it, or actually you never really hear the Jewish folk talk about the apocalypse, but, you know, they seem to be the one religion that is relatively sensible. So, you know, hey, hey the, the Muslims are saying this is the, the final moment or whatever. Um, because it's non-denominational, this 2012 thing, I think you're going to see people from every every denomination and even atheists and agnostics kind of take that moment, pause and think about what it might mean, where we are. I think that's a good thing. So bravo. That's what I'm gonna take out of twenty twelve. You know, over the next year and a half, sort of take stock. Use it as a, a marker and then understanding that after that we have to move forward. And uh yeah. That's all that's what I have to say about twenty twelve. Yeah, I guess. As far as Gump would say, that's what I have to say about that. <laughs>
0: Yeah, well, it, that would be a good thing. You hope for that. I think some- I think you give people too much credit. Almost though, I think it, you know. I think there's just this vast majority of, of morons out there, or people who are just so self-absorbed that they don't—they're incapable of taking stock of themselves. Almost. Well, yeah. Look. Maybe I'm just negative. I don't know. <laughs> I, I think this is a role reversal here, because from what I can recall from our previous shows, you, you were the negative one, and I was the, the positive
1: one. But Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, I'm about to do something I, I swore I, I would never do, but I do it occasionally. But who is Paul Kimball, or who am I? You know, uh, there's the Paul Kimball that you see on ghost cases, or the, the media persona, and then there's the Paul Kimball that my friends know, and those are two – sometimes they're the same person you know there's points where they intersect but there's other points where look you know it one's a character or sort of a character and and one is not and i think people like nick do that too there's there's that nick and then there's another nick and um you know i'm i'm less interested in playing the character now and more interested in just being me and if people like who me is great if they don't that's fine too of course they you know didn't always like the character either, but it was good for ratings. But, um, you know, I, I've always had a positive view of people. Now, it's individuals I sometimes have, you know, a negative view of, like I'll, I'll meet a particular individual or whatever. But generally speaking, um, to answer Max's question, I think that theoretically we are worthy of survival. In practice, however, I'm not sure I could make that case, you know, like those are two different things. Yeah. Whatever human beings are and what we should be, yes, there's potential. There's there's so much more that we could be, but we haven't hit it yet. And at some point, you kind of say, well, you know what? It's like being a pitcher, and at some point, the manager's going to pull you if you keep walking batters and giving up hits and runs. And I think that we have the potential as a species to throw a perfect game unfortunately, I think we're in the third inning. We've given up seven hits, four walks, and five, <laughs> five. Now, somehow, because the other team isn't doing very well, we're still in it. But I can see the manager on the bench and he's got people warming up in the bullpen, and they're not people. they're other species, or you know something. So say human humanity disappears tomorrow. Well, in a million years or ten million, something else will come on this planet or in some other corner of the universe or this galaxy, whatever. There are other intelligences, other civilizations, or even on our own planet. Maybe the dolphins deserve a shot to run it in a million years or two million years. Um, you know, we have this idea. It, there's a book called Ishmael that I would recommend everybody read by an author named Daniel Quinn. He's written a number of good books. But this idea that human beings, its, it's I'm really doing it an injustice when I say it's about a um, talking chimp, Who's a philosopher, and he basically gives life life lessons to a human being. That that doesn't even begin to cover it, but you know that's the Colson notes version, or as you Americans would say, the Cliff's Notes version. But this idea that we view ourselves as the top of the pyramid, the totem pole, that we have the right to decide who or what lives and dies, whether it's humans or animals or anything else. And we even refer to it like, you know, the President of the United States is the most powerful man in the world. Well, technically, yes, I suppose he is, in terms of his ability to drop a nuclear weapon on somebody or something. But in terms of his ability to uh, or her someday ability to influence lives, to make us better, to move the human race forward, you know what? Frankly, I think the most powerful men or women on the planet are people like Mozart and Bach in music, or Paul McCartney from a modern pop perspective, or artists from Vincent van Gogh. I was at the Getty Center in Los Angeles, and they have um, Van Gogh's irises there, along with a bunch of other great paintings from the impressionistic period. Nobody, I dare anybody listening to this show to tell me or you who the president of the United States was when Vincent van Gogh painted irises. Good luck. And yet there's his painting and that painting is still influencing people. I you know the United States didn't even exist when Mozart was writing his work. And yet it's Mozart we still remember. Um, we don't remember most Americans wouldn't remember even famous presidents like Andrew Jackson or James Madison what they really did. You know, the names might resonate but what did they really do? Yeah, who knows? Maybe Jefferson, maybe Lincoln, maybe Roosevelt, a couple yeah. Have made those kinds of contributions. But the truth is, the most powerful people on the planet are the people who create ideas that last. People like Kierkegaard, people like Hegel, people like Nietzsche, whatever, you can pick your philosophers. People like Bach and Mozart and Beethoven, and people like Hemingway and Shakespeare and Dickens. Those are the people who've made a difference in the human condition. So who's, you know, who's powerful, who's not? What matters, what doesn't matter? And we're so obsessed with this political thing and this militaristic thing and everything. And I think that human beings, and this is the sort of positive point of view, um, I think instinctively we know what matters, even if we buy into the American Idol <laughs> bread and circuses kind of stuff that, that are, that's fed to us in the same way that Romans fed their citizens bread and circuses to keep them complacent and happy. I think if we appeal to people's intellect and to their emotions in a positive way, Will make a far greater impact on human history and a more beneficial impact on human history than any politician is ever going to make. And for anybody who knew me when I was young, I mean, in my yearbook in um, college when I graduated, at the the final line said, "See you all at uh, uh, 24 Sussex Drive," which is where our Prime Minister lives. It's like the White House for Canada. Yeah. So you know what I. That I thought politics was the be-all and end-all there. I thought it was the only way you could make a difference. I thought it was the only way you could be important and change anything. So I wanted to be a politician. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to be prime minister someday. And then I realized slowly as I get older two things. One, I was never going to learn how to speak French, which means in <laughs> Canada you're never going to be prime minister. But I could have settled for minister of national defense or foreign affairs, but I didn't even want to do that. You know what? It's ephemeral. It it comes and it goes, and I'm I'm not sure you're making anything more than a temporary impact. I think the long-term impact is made by people who are artists, creators, thinkers, and encourage other people to do the same thing in their own way, which is why I became a musician and now a filmmaker, and uh, why I write about things like UFOs and ghosts and and philosophical things as well. So, If that makes any sense.
0: You're just so deep tonight. I feel like I should have smoked a joint or
1: something before this interview. You didn't? I smoked three, man.
2: <laughs> Dude.
1: Yeah. It's the other thing, too. Like, we, we lose ourselves. Um, I've been known to drink pretty heavily. I'm not an alcoholic. I'm a situational alcoholic. So, you know, I don't get drunk every day, but when I do get drunk, let me tell you, man. There
0: you go. You I'm, of, of the, I'm of the same ilk.
1: You were there. You and, When you came up to Halifax, we partied, and I joke about you being in Reflections, but we were so kablammoed that we went back to my office, and um there was another office down the hall like three in the morning and there was a guy in there running a photography session. He was a he's a professional photographer. And so I went, ripped the sign off his door and started banging on his door. I think you probably remember that. I vaguely remember and, it, yeah. Yeah, and the guy came out and he started yelling, and I was like, Yeah, what the fuck Anyway, um, you'll edit this part of the show out. So yeah, you know, but I don't drink. It's it's not a health choice or anything else. It's occasionally I'll have a beer now. But certainly the idea of going out and getting drunk and altering one's reality, which is what I used to do. No. Now it's like, hey, let's go out and let this reality. I don't need alcohol or anything else. I I dig this reality. And, um, yeah, so maybe it is a bit of a different Paul Kimball at 44 than it was at 37 or 38. It's called a midlife crisis. I prefer to call it a midlife opportunity. Oh, I like that. Or awakening. Maybe that's a better one. Well, you know, it's – I, I'm not there yet where where you're at, but it, I, I
0: can see your point of view in the sense, because it's like, you know, you're younger and you're full of piss and vinegar, and we, we talked about this earlier. I was talking about my 20s and shit uh, before we started the interview, but it's like, you know, you're kind of full of piss and vinegar and you think you're going to change the world and everything, and that, you, you know, I, I find myself, even today, you know, I look back on even my point of view, like, from a few weeks ago or something, and I'm like, oh, I was so stupid back then. You know, so it's like you, you have to kind of get to that point, too, where you just realize that, you know, as on top of it as you may think you are right now, you're probably full of shit or you're probably like puffing yourself up and you don't realize it.
1: Sure. Date a crazy actress for a month and it changes your world. Uh, <laughs> and you know who I'm talking about. Oh, yeah. Because, yeah, you know, it's just like none of us are perfect. I was one of the most arrogant people you would ever meet in my early 20s, uh, full of hubris. Um, I, st- I still am arrogant. I, I recognize it now. Uh, and you know what? The truth is I can back it up. So if I want to play uh, Jeopardy or whatever, knowledge and all that stuff, I'm going to win 99 times out of 100 against 99 people out of 100. I'm going to win. So what? At, it doesn't. It's like being president. You sort of realize that whatever I can accomplish in terms, of the, in terms of making money or in terms of being better, quote, quote, than somebody else at doing something, that it too is ephemeral; it doesn't last. So, and it's not necessarily making a positive contribution. And it's so easy for us to be selfish, and and I recognize, you know, that I'm as selfish or more selfish than any anybody else I know. I try, but once you sort of see that, you say, well, okay, how can I how can I be better? And then it goes back to the political thing. Well, okay, why did I want to be in politics? The answer was looking back on it now, because I wanted to be important. I wanted to be noticed. I wanted to be popular. I wanted people to basically stand up and say, you're the best. Like, you're the guy. Well, it wasn't about me helping them then, was it? It, Even if I was doing things that were helping them, it was about me helping me. Yeah. Hence, Anthony Weiner, you know, or any politician that goes out and, you know, these narcissists. I was a narcissist. Still am to an extent. But at some point, you kind of grow up, or at least you should, and you realize it's more important to make a positive contribution where I actually contribute something to the greater human good. Because if I don't, then everything I do in this life will be forgotten when it's, when it's done. And, I'm, you know, I'm not going to be around to see it, but I would rather be something other than just a tombstone in a cemetery. And after all my friends who knew me have died, nobody remembers me. If you really want to be remembered... I sort of figured out then the way to be remembered is to do something useful. And, again, see, it's still a bit about me or about each and every one of us. But it's also an understanding that only by contributing to the whole can you matter as an individual. that That's my new mantra. And you have to do it, um, you know, sort of from a selfless place. And the, the super bonus is that everything you would have wanted when you were a kid will come to you. But you have to get there the right way. Uh, if that makes any sense, I, mean, I don't think I just phrased it right because it still makes me sound like a selfish prick. Only a smarter one who's, you know, discovered the right words, Deepak Chopra, to say to people <laughs> to get them to give them money. But you know what? Um, you know, whatever. It, I just stopped caring about what people think, and I just wanted to do good things. So the music thing, you know, you start writing your songs because you want, <laughs> maybe you want people to uh, like your band. By the end of it. I was writing songs and performing long after I probably should have stopped because I enjoyed it and because I enjoyed people enjoying what I was doing. And there was that kind of community that developed. And filmmaking has been the same way. You know, I I do films, I wanna I, I wanna challenge people. I wanna give them something to think about. I want to I just don't want them to walk out after seeing one of my films and, and go, ah, the popcorn was good, uh, you know, the film's okay. <laughs> and they don't remember it. Michael Bay makes those films. I would rather make films like Ingmar Bergman. And, you know, that I think is, yeah, maybe it's a more mature me. Wow, Tim, this is like an episode of Oprah.
0: I know. Well, see, this is, see, you say, oh, you, you know, you're not talking at all, but see what happens when I don't talk? Yes, yes. It's the jujitsu style of interview, as someone once <laughs>
1: pointed out. I'm
0: jiu-jitsu. just going to keep
1: pulling <laughs> on you. <laughs> Well, and so many other interviewers use the you know the karate style of interviewer where they just keep hitting you, you go know, over the head. Exactly.
0: Um, now you're saying this is your last interview uh, about about beyond best evidence. Uh, I don't believe that necessarily. I feel like you know the, this thing will come back around again, and, and we'll be talking about it again in the future. But you know, are you? Are you, like, leaving the paranormal behind? Are you, are you sort of uh, moving into some other sphere of, of work? I mean, what, where where do you see yourself going here now? Uh, this is your last UFO movie. Where does that leave you as far as creating things, I guess you could say, for, for the paranormal?
1: Well, two things. One, um, when I said it was my last interview about Beyond Best Evidence, I meant about the fundraising campaign. Yeah. Um, Once we get the film made, or even as the film is being made, you know, I'll probably talk about it. Right, that's That's what I meant, yeah. um, The other thing is, it is either my last film about the UFO phenomenon, or as I like to think about it, my first film about the paranormal and what all of it means. So, you know, it's a door is closing and another door is, is opening up, and it's a much, it's a door to a much bigger room, and a much more interesting room. So, UFOs will always be part of the conversation whenever I talk about the paranormal because I think they're part of the conversation but they're not going to be the only part so I did a series a season uh, of ghost cases where I went out and looked into ghosts and associated ghostly type stuff Um, but in one or two of those episodes I talked about UFOs too because again I think they may well be interrelated I kind of view it as looking for the answers, or at least, if not the answers, I think that might be beyond us, looking for the right questions to ask about what an advanced non-human intelligence might be and might represent for us. So, yeah, I'll be making films or writing about things like that. And that will take you know, a more philosophical bent. It might take a more um, new agey bent, as some people would probably say. Um, and far, probably, and, and certainly, I would guess far less nuts and bolts cases and things like that. But you know what? I, I do a lot of other things too. I have a feature film that's in, just went through development that has like zero to do with UFOs or anything else. It's a uh, Ingmar Bergman kind of film about um, life after death and, oh, wow. and and interhuman relationships and things like that. So, and I've got the film with Walter that's a supernatural thriller. And then Mac Tonys and I wrote Doing Time, which is a science fiction film about extraterrestrial life, sort of. But even using, if I want to use the paranormal themes, at the end of the day, I don't think we'll ever be able to fully understand what the paranormal is. What I think the paranormal is there for is to help us understand more about what we are. And so that's kind of, whether it's through my work with fiction and drama for film and television or whether poetry or songs that I my band's getting back together in the fall you know whatever it is that I'm doing that's creative it's going to be to try and address that question um, or to um, to explore that question which is who are we as people and as a species and what is our relationship to everything around us so um, yeah there you go midlife crisis or um, sorry midlife opportunity (laughs) All right, uh, should we wrap it up here? Sure, because you know uh, the only other thing I'd say is because I hear chicks dig the sensitive guys. Chicks See, I dig can, sensitive. I guys. will always retain a small amount of my snarky, <laughs> <laughs> you know, kind of um, self-deprecating or whatever humor. So, um, yeah, I'm a kinder, gentler Paul, but I still have I still have claws. Oh right. yeah, he
0: does still have claws, folks. Trust me. Ooh do not you
1: promise not to tell
2: anyone
0: (laughs) (laughs) well you know i i did sort of like turn the floor over here to you here for this conversation but i just felt like you were having such important things to say and these deep sort of um profound sort of thoughts that i didn't want to get in the way with uh my own snarkiness so but i've enjoyed the conversation quite a bit
1: yeah well so have i i always enjoy talking to you and you know what um you don't get the credit you deserve uh all the time because you let people talk and they say interesting things. And I know you have hung out with you. Uh Take no offense when I say that sometimes you come across as you know a Red Sox cheer and beer swill in Massachusetts uh, rube. You're not. You're a smart guy. I wouldn't have asked you to work with me on this project if you weren't. You have, you're as intelligent as anyone else. You have your own interesting thoughts. The only thing I would say is sometimes I listen to your show and, you know, you hear other shows where people are expounding on their thoughts and you go, I don't – their thoughts are – where'd they get that from? You're a guy who should talk a little more. So I like it when you go on other people's shows. Like when you go when you go on Greg's show and you talk every now and then, you you, you know, what does Tim think? Because you have stuff to offer, tons of stuff to offer. Well, I appreciate that. I, I,
0: I try not to to pontificate too much on my own show. It's just my own personal style or preference. In my mind, you know, the audience isn't here to listen to me. They're here to hear the guest.
1: You're so. right and you're wrong. It's funny. Greg and I, when we were driving to the airport yesterday, he was dropping me off in L.A., we We're talking a bit about that, talking a bit about your show, too, because I think um, the one thing I complain about is you don't use Skype, which, dude, that's so 1994, <laughs> you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, the idea, do people tune in to hear the guests? Absolutely, for sure. But I think they also tune in to hear the hosts, a lot of the time, you know, you get comfortable, you get used to a host. So, in your show, I think there's a number of people, I read your forms every now and then, they tune in to listen to you. There were people who tuned into the Paracast to listen to David Biedney. As much as he annoyed some people, there were other people who were fans. There are people who tune in, I read their form on occasion, to listen to um, Vaney and Ritzman because they are Vaney and Ritzman. They will tune in no matter who the guest is. So, I think the host, in many cases, is as important as the guests. But the nice thing is about you, you reveal that in interviews you do, you know, if you're on Greg's show or something, or if you're on um, Paratopia, then you reveal who you are. But on your own show, you play it straight up. That's cool. Kudos to you, man, which is what we're going to do in the film. See how I brought that around. Exactly. Excellent. I mean, yeah, we're going to give everybody their say. And sure, we'll shape the narrative. Uh, Any editorial, you, you always do that when you edit a film. But, you know, it's not going to be me talking as it has been here. It's going to be everybody else talking and, uh, and and saying really cool, interesting things, I hope. And, you know, we'll have some really cool, interesting people, too. We haven't even talked about that. But,
2: um,
1: you know, we're going to go out of our way to get the most interesting people that you can think of interested in the subject, saying some pretty darn interesting things. And I hope to get people who you wouldn't expect, like philosophers, to come in and sort of talk about the idea of conversing with a non-human intelligence. What could it mean? So, you know, it's not your grandfather's UFO documentary, that's for sure.
0: Exactly, yeah. And and folks, you know, obviously we need their help. We need them to donate and everything. But they shouldn't lose hope that just because, you know, as I said earlier, the donations so far have been tepid, that doesn't mean that
1: that we're going to fold up shop here on this thing. Oh, well, we're not. What would probably happen is I would park the money in my company's bank account. It would sit there until we could raise more money from other sources, or until I had a, uh, which I just signed a co-production deal. So you know I might be swimming in cash in six months. Who knows? Like a lot of cash for a feature film. So you know I, it's easy enough to take fifteen or twenty thousand dollars out of that. But what it would mean is it would take longer to get the film made. If we can reach the goal that we're looking for now, or even get close to it, then you know, we have we have the ability to move pretty quickly and get into production this summer. Otherwise, you know, maybe we're looking at, you know, an extra 6 to 12 months kind of thing. So it's more of a timing thing. Right. But but folks shouldn't be worried. You know, worst case scenario, what would happen is if we decided not to do the film, we just, ref- we you know, we have everybody's address and we know where they live because you have to make that information available when you <laughs> donate. Yeah, don't throw them. Um, or at least your email. <laughs> uh, we know everybody, how to get in touch with folks. We just refund the money. But um, but that's not gonna have to happen because you know Tim and I are both committed to making the film. I think as you listen to this, despite the griping and the new agey stuff, the core of it is this film really interests us. We're excited about it. I am anyway. I'm definitely excited, excited about it. I'm totally excited the interview. About it. Tim Benal, are you interested about making Beyond Best Evidence?
0: <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I'm very excited about it. I, I mean I I'm disappointed by the, the you know what's been a tough slog so far here for the donations aspect of it, but the the content of it it, it is tremendously exciting because it's what I've been talking about for a long time, which is that we need to reframe this whole thing from the point of view, instead of trying to prove this, that UFOs are real, that that's over with, but it's time to try and figure out what they are, or at least, you know, Talk about the best possibilities for what they are. And and like you said, let the audience decide. We're not we're not gonna go out and make this movie and say, you know, that when the movie's over with, you're gonna know for sure what UFOs are. You won't, but you'll have a pretty good idea what everybody seems to think they might be. Or different sure. opinions.
1: Yes, absolutely. You'll know what all the possibilities are and you'll also um No, it sounds arrogant to say you'll know what questions to ask. You know what I think most people know what questions to ask. So, uh, but you'll have had those questions asked for you exactly to to people who are in a position to be able to provide their answers, and then other people who provide other answers, and then you can choose which ones make the most sense to you.
0: Yeah, and plus I think you know you, I'm sure you run into this. You know, you talk to, and I'm sure people who are listening, who are interested in the subject and everything, uh, have run into this too. Well, you run into someone who doesn't follow UFOs and doesn't understand ufology and they don't know, you know, like I said earlier, they think it's just ETs and everything, and they ask you, like, you know, well, what is it? You know, what what are UFOs? And it's like such a complex answer to try and explain to people that this film will go a long way in helping to to, you know, put those words in people's mouths. Because I know I find myself, you know, in that position where people ask me, you know, what are UFOs? And it's like, well, how long do you have? Because there's all these different perspectives on what they are. It's not just this one cut-and-dry thing. And at the end of the day, we don't know what they are, but here's like six different possibilities, and a lot of people have put a lot of hard work into into either, I wouldn't go so far as to say proving, but certainly, you know, bolstering their case for what what they are.
1: For sure. And, you know, no film, no book, no nothing is ever going to be the one definitive answer. Um, So you can look at a Michael Moore film like Capitalism, A Love Story. It's a scathing deconstruction and critique of the modern American capitalist system or Western capitalist system. But it only scratches the surface, and it's a hundred and some odd minutes long. So, you know, what a film is designed to do is to get people thinking. It's kind of like throwing a a mongoose in amongst the pit of snakes. Wait, no. Well, whatever. Let's just run with that. So it's like throwing a mongoose in, <laughs> in the middle of a pit of snakes. Hey, it's 1130 here, man, and I'm still on California time. So, you know, and the, and the snakes are all sort of lying around going, ah, what are we going to do today, man? I don't know. What do you think? And then you throw the mongoose in and the snakes all go,
2: frog!
1: <laughs> and and <laughs> stuff happens. And you just don't know what's going to happen because the mongoose is crazy, man. Crazy. But, you know, that's what we're going to do. We're going to throw a mongoose in a pit of snakes and then um, I think I've just said that everybody. Everybody watches this film is a snake. Well, folks, you know what I mean. Um, you're good, happy snakes. <laughs> Let's just assume we're all snakes. Where has this analogy
0: gone? I don't
1: I, I don't know, but we're just going to drop a giant mongoose. That's what Beyond Best Evidence is. It's the giant mongoose that gets dropped into the pit of snakes. The snakes are all
0: the different theories on UFOs.
1: Yeah, there you go. Fine. Then we're going to shake things up, and the mongoose is going to kill something, and... And then, you know, probably be overwhelmed by the cobras and, and die. But, um, yeah, it be fun. It'll be That's cool. why we need your donations, folks. You know what it costs to rent a mongoose? <laughs> Especially when you're not going to be giving it back. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I rented you a live mongoose, and this one is not breathing. It is dead. Oh, no, it's just resting. It's pining for the fjords of Norway.
0: <laughs> yeah. uh, all right. Well, where can people find out more from you, Paul? Uh, Red Star Films is obviously uh, your film company, but what's uh, what's the address there for the blog? I always get tricked up on it because I think there's like an ass missing or something.
1: You know what? Let's ignore the blog. Let's ignore my company's website. Let's just give them the, um, the Indiegogo, uh, Indiegogo, page. Indiegogo site. Go, if you go to Indiegogo dot com slash UFO you will find our fundraising campaign and to spell that out for you although I know Tim will put a link and there's you can go to All of America there's a link on the front yeah page. I spell it out uh, every episode anyway so yeah it's, the I-N-D- it's indiegogo dot com slash UFO and uh, if you want to read about my current thoughts it's redstarfilms dot blogspot dot com that's where I, I do most of my new agey mongoose rattling thinking <laughs> I want to be known as the mongoose of modern ufology. That would be good. There okay,
0: you. that's – all right. For a minute, I, I was thinking of Chris Benoit, but he was the wolverine, so we don't want to even – the
1: wolverine, and he's a bad example, to uh, Yeah, that's why I was going to caution you, but you, yeah, you, you're, you're okay. correct. Okay. Yeah. In fact, you can title this episode, um, Beyond Best Evidence, The Mongoose That Ate Ufology. There you go. That would be perfect.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but you're too you, – but you're so docile now, I don't see how you're – you're less a mongoose. You're you're like a you're like the hippie mongoose. I don't know.
2: Yeah, dude,
1: I'm the hippie mongoose. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> just kind of like I don't want to you know kill the snakes. I just want to jump in and 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 get them sort of dancing. It's like, hey, snakes, you're lazy. Scare them a little God. bit. Yeah, shake them up. Exactly. You're not a worthy adversary anymore. So yeah, I don't know. Whatever.
0: Yeah, this has gone I think off we've the track. T- t- I think we've taken
1: the mongoose thing. Uh, about as far as we can. I mean, the only ho- other conversation we would have to have left is what are you going to use as the theme song for this episode? And do I get to request one? Have oh, you-, you haven't heard the news, have you? Oh, no, I haven't heard the news. No, I got my knuckles slapped. Oh.
0: We won't be using any more popular music on the... Well, we won't be using any more copyrighted music on the program any longer.
1: I can let you use one of my old bands. Band if you, you want song. to,
0: yeah, send me the song and I'll use it for the theme song.
1: Okay, sure, because I have one that might be apropos, actually.
0: Yeah, even though the show's free, even though the show doesn't charge any money, or, you know, I can understand, I guess, the artists,
1: whatever, you know how it is. I can't, but that's probably why I wasn't a very successful musician, so... What do you mean, Um, you can't what? Understand the artist's point of view. You know what, Uh, if somebody else is just putting your song out there so people can hear it as part of a show, and the show doesn't charge... If there's another – if there's a paying show like Oprah, if Oprah was using it, yes, she should pay fees. Absolutely. Right. But if it's some guy with a podcast, and he's not making any money off it, but he's – like if you play a Dylan song or an REM song, what you're doing is saying, hey, by the way, I really dig your music. I am a fan, so I I like you so much I used your song as, as part of my show. Well, what harm is what harm is there? And um, so, yeah, I don't understand the music industry when they get upset about things like that. But right, I'll right. send you one of my old my band's old songs, and, and hopefully that works for you. Yeah, send me one of
0: the old songs. I mean, I see your point of view on that, and that was my attitude too. I guess really the person, <laughs> the people who don't understand that point of view are the uh, the litigious people who uh, alerted me to the fact that I can't do that. Yeah, probably. So you know, they're the ones that collect probably fucking twenty-five cents on every licensing time it's played or some shit like that. You know, pretty much. Yeah. Well, it was good having you back on the show, Paul. It was great having you back on the show. What am I talking about? And uh, gave gave me a lot of food for thought here, and and uh, I was excited and 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 intrigued, and and really, you had my brain working quite a bit. So for people who think that I wasn't talkative enough, um, hey, kiss
1: my butt. <laughs> Oh, and we go back to the entire Reflections meme again. Um, yeah, sure. <laughs> I always enjoy coming on Banal of America. I'm a big fan of the Banal of America experience, as I like to call it. I hope to see the Vegas ride someday soon. You know, I think you'd fit in well at the, you know, or maybe or something like that. So, um, yeah, I'd like a roller coaster. All Whatever. right. Well, well, we'll see what we can do.
0: Yeah. This is uh, just phase one of the whole Banal of America empire, so...
1: Hey, you were on my list of the ten young people who years ago who were going to change ufology or whatever it was because you put your face on underwear. So how's that working out? We don't underwear. sell the underwear anymore. That's unfortunate. That was the smartest thing I think I've ever seen any ufology radio show or whatever do. So if I can, can get gonna... see, I need to like license.
0: I think I think a Stan Friedman song would actually sell better. I need to like license these well-known ufologists.
1: Uh yeah.
0: I don't know, though. I mean, now that I'm more well-known, maybe I should bring back the underwear.
1: I think you should uh, license a Billy Meyer play R.N. chick thong. You know, like the cute blonde girls that uh, Billy Meyer took from a Sears catalog or something and said they were aliens, because I might buy a pair of those. I'll look into it. (laughs) That's all I'm going to say.
0: All right. Well, it was great talking to you again, Paul. (laughs) I feel like we should cut this off before it goes crazy again.
1: Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And uh, for everyone who uh, does join our team, thank you uh, for helping us help make a difference.
0: Absolutely. That does it for this week's installment of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Paul Kimball for coming on the show on such short notice and also for providing us with the theme music to this edition of BOA Audio. You can find out more from Paul at the website, www.redstarfilms.blogspot.com. And if you want to make a donation to Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma, head on over to Indiegogo.com UFO, and that's spelled I-N-D-I-E-G-O-G-O dot com slash UFO. No donation is too small, and all donations are greatly appreciated, folks. Hopefully, this two-hour conversation has given you some idea as to the direction we are trying to take this remarkable film. Moving right along now, normally it would be the time for BOA Audio listener feedback, but for the third week in a row, we're going to do a little bit of in-house notes instead The last time you heard from me, I said we were about, I think, 90% done with the project. Switching the BOA Audio Archive over to our new audio host, slash distributor, Cyberears.com. We are very, very close now. Seasons 2, 3, 4, and 5 are online. 90% of Season 1 is online, and about 60% of Season 6 is online as well. So we're looking at about maybe a dozen episodes left that need to be edited and uploaded to Cyber Ears before the big project is complete. I had hoped to be able to take care of that this past week, but we taped three new episodes of BOA Audio this past week. One of which, of course, you just heard here with Paul Kimball, plus two others that are just tremendous. And I'll be telling you about those later on here in this end cap. Suffice it to say, really, I just had no time on my hands this week to take care of the project. But, looking ahead, I've got a clear weekend coming up this coming weekend. Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So, I will be sitting down to finally wrap up the big project. It is a number one on my agenda, folks. We will have a big announcement when the project is complete on the BOA homepage and on the BOA Facebook page, so stay tuned for that, hopefully by this time next week. Now, since this is the last episode, you're going to hear me plugging Beyond Best Evidence, the UFO Enigma. We're going to need something else to plug here at the end of the show, and as luck would have it, we've got an awesome event that I want to be telling you about here at the end of the program leading up to the big day. As listeners of our sister program, The Good Parade, know, I served as the Master of Ceremonies last year at the Exeter UFO Festival in Exeter, New Hampshire, and I am humbled and thrilled to announce that I will be returning this year to Exeter, New Hampshire for the third annual Exeter UFO Festival and serving as the Master of Ceremonies once again for the big festivities. The event is going to be September 3rd in Exeter, New Hampshire, and the lineup is taking shape right now, and it looks tremendous. Starting with the amazing Richard Dolan, and after last year's packed house, the father of modern-day ufology, Stanton Friedman, will return to the Exeter UFO Festival. And since the big event commemorates the 50th anniversary of the Betty and Barney Hill abduction case... Another speaker at the Exeter UFO Festival will be Betty and Barney Hill's niece, Kathleen Martin, co-author of the book with Stanton Friedman, Captured, which detailed the infamous Betty and Barney Hill abduction case. So we've got Kathleen Martin, Stanton Friedman, and Rich Dolan appearing at the event. I'll be the MC, and if you haven't heard by now, the event is totally free. It's free to the public. You don't have to buy tickets. You just got to find your way to Exeter, New Hampshire, September 3rd. And you can walk right in the door and check out Rich Dolan, Stanton Friedman, Kathleen Martin, and myself as the MC. Plus, at the event, is going to be the world premiere of the documentary Strange Septembers, The Hill Abduction, and The Exeter Encounter by Jeff and Jess Finn. So we're going to also have a documentary film there as well. Tons of stuff going on. I'm working on some additional side events for the Exeter UFO Festival. Can't talk about that just yet, but I wanted to bring the news to all you folks out there, all the awesome BOA Audio listeners, that the Exeter UFO Festival will be happening. I will be returning as the host. We've got some amazing speakers there. Saturday, September 3rd, 2011, the third annual Exeter UFO Festival you can find out more about that at ExeterUFOFestival.com. Pretty simple, all one word, Exeter, E-X-E-T-E-R, UFO Festival.com, And we'll have links up at Banal of America in the next few days to the website for the big Exeter UFO Fest. Last year, the Exeter event was just an amazing experience, a huge party for the folks who are friends of BOA and also an amazingly informative weekend so if you make it up to the Exeter UFO Festival this year folks you do not want to miss this event that takes care of the in-house notes this week I promise we will bring back BOA audio listener feedback next week but if you want to get a hold of me in the meantime shoot me a line at BOAaudio at hotmail.com or go to binallofamerica.com, b-i-n-n-a-l-l-of-america.com, and click the contact button. If you want something a little more interactive, you can also join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, t-h-e-u-s-o-f-e.com. If that's too many letters jumbled up for you, just head on over to BOA and click the forum button. We like to call it BOA's Paranormal Playground. There's discussion on all the different facets of the esoteric, as well as a whole bunch of discussions going on regarding pop culture and the good parade. So head on over to the US of E and join in on the fun. And if you're a part of Facebook or Twitter, I am also on those social network sites. So just punch in BINNALL, B-I-N-N-A-L-L, and I should be one of the very first people to pop up. Follow me, befriend me, poke me. It's all good, and I would be certainly happy to have you as part of BOA's online circle of friends. Up next, let's thank the folks who helped make BOA what it is, talking about the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff. Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Jovi, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our contributing cartoonist, Annie Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. They are doing a fantastic job keeping BOA stocked with some really compelling thoughts from a variety of different perspectives. We say a week in and week out here at the end of the show, but it bears repeating. If you're only listening to BOA audio and you're not reading the columns at All of America, then you're only getting half the story. BOA, make it a part of your everyday search esoteric news and opinion. No sense in me taking off the hat and passing it around to folks out there to ask for donations to Banal of America, since this episode really sort of doubled as the Beyond Best Evidence infomercial. So let me just plug that website once again, where you can go and make a donation to help us make this film happen. The website is www.indiegogo.com UFO. Indie, I-N-D-I-E, G-O-G-O dot com slash U-F-O. Or just click on the banner at Banal of America and that will take you to the website. All these different tiers of donations. Say you want to throw in $50, bucks, you are going to get some cool stuff. Say you want to throw in $100, bucks, you are going to get even more cool stuff. So head on over there, check it out. Maybe you'll see something that interests you. And as I like to think that we've stressed here on the program, if you can't afford to make a donation, we understand, folks. Help us spread the word in other ways. Do your part as best you can, and it would be greatly appreciated. Next week on the program, we're going to try and stay within the one-week realm here now that we've got some episodes in the can. And I can tell you right now that next week's installment of the program is fantastic. The guest is Paul Bannister. He's the author of Tabloid Man and the Baffling Chair of Death. It's a memoir from Paul, who was the National Enquirer's chief paranormal reporter during the 1970s. And he takes us behind the scenes at the National Enquirer in the 1970s and gives us an amazing look at what this world was like. It is truly stunning. I loved the book. You can hear me raving about this book during the episode. It was just simply fantastic and mind-blowing what kind of stuff was going down at the National Enquirer in the 1970s and early 80s. We just taped this episode this past Monday night, so I can't really preview too much of what we're going to be talking about, but we will definitely be delving into the the behind-the-scenes dealings at the National Enquirer, Paul's interaction with a variety of celebrities, some of the truly weird paranormal cases he investigated for the National Enquirer, and a whole bunch more. Runs about two hours and is just tremendous stuff. That's Paul Bannister, author of tabloid man and the baffling chair of death next week on boa audio now i've told you here that we've taped a bunch of episodes and normally i like to keep my cards close to my vest i like to tease out a little bit of information about upcoming episodes as we get closer to their posting so i just want to give you a little tease of what's coming on july 4th weekend I got three words for you, folks. Spontaneous human combustion. An amazing episode of the program, an instant classic BOA audio. SpawnCom finally steps into the spotlight on Banal of America, and it is tremendous. So keep your eyes peeled July 4th weekend at BOA for our SpawnCom Spectacular. And on that note, we close the book on another edition of BOA Audio Season 6. Big, big thanks to Paul Kimball for coming on the show. Big, big thanks, of course, to all you folks out there, the tremendous BOA Audio listeners. You guys are the best. Without you guys, there would be no Binall of America. I am continually humbled by your support of this program. Thank you for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. And until next time, this is Tim Binall. Once again, thanking you for listening and signing off.